720. WGN, it is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago Skyline Studio in for Nick D until 4 a.m. And we have got uh, a great show on tap for you today. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the areas of uh, of food, some of the areas. A little bit, not necessarily film, but theater industry. And I know Blockbuster Blake Stubbs is going to talk about a, a really a Blockbuster ruling that's happened in the courts. It's going to transform the relationship between the, the studios and the theaters, and that is going to be something we're going to be affected by. So looking forward to that. We're going to have uh, Kate Webster. She's going to be calling us live from Australia, and she's going to be talking about eco-tourism, not only Australia and how they're dealing with it on the pandemic side, but all of those things that she is doing in uh, in Africa with all of those uh, animals and endangered species situations, civilizations and cultures and, and how they're dealing with not only the, the challenges that they always have throughout the years, but also the new ones related to the pandemic. So we'll talk with her about that a little closer on the road trip side. Uh, Jonathan Distead, he is the founder of Blackstone RV. They are transforming the road trip industry with some really cool stuff that it's going to allow people to make that choice to get out on the road with the family, see America, get at one with nature, but do it with the creature comforts uh, that I think everybody will uh, will appreciate. And now with a lot of those travel options kind of on the sidelines, this is something that's getting a lot more attention. And then author, uh, music historian Greg Ranoff. We're going to talk about the rock and roll scene, live music. So much of that is on the sidelines throughout history, and of course the appeal of uh, of the live audience. Excited to have our guest on now, and you really all of those things that I mentioned, they all relate to 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 this. It all relates to trucking because what's that saying? It's like whatever you you know, anything you eat or drink or sit on or have in your house or anything is related to and kind of uh, you have to thank the trucking industry for it as well and on the line with us excited to have uh mark reddick he is the host and program director for landline now always covering the trucking industry mark welcome to wgn well glad to be with you well it's, it's good to have you on it's good to have a little bit of um something that has something to do with everything for the listeners out there that you know they they have trucks out on the roadway they pass them they're in the way in traffic they're uh, they, or if they're in the, you know, in the in the industry side, or if at the stores, you know, they're they're the things that bring things to the places of business all over the place. But for the listeners that may share the roadways with them, but aren't completely in tune or familiar with just that footprint that the trucking industry has, you, can you kind of share that for the listeners? Just how many how many trucks are out there? How many men and women are part of what is that such you know that so kind of integral workforce for trucking? I usually see figures around three to three and a half million. And of course, it, it varies uh, year to year, sometimes month to month or week to week. Uh, the employment picture in trucking is, is kind of crazy. The uh, turnover uh, per year is close to 100% uh, at most trucking or at trucking companies on average. Now, you've got people that have been in the industry for 20, 30, 40 plus years. Um, and the amazing thing is I know an enormous number of these folks who have driven that many years going about seven to eight times the miles of a car in any given year and have never once caused an accident, um, which is really an incredible record. They, they kind of have this reputation that they've been given of being a danger, but in reality, uh, by their driving records, they're some of the safest drivers on the road. Uh, but, but honestly, you talk about people that sometimes can be gone from their home and their family up to three months at a time, people that spend anywhere from 200 to 300 nights a year away from their families. 
And as you said, they're bringing everything. Um, a lot of people think, oh, my stuff gets here on a train. Well, even if it went on a train, unless your grocery store right. or your department store or your Walmart has a railhead, it's still got there on a truck. Yeah. Oh, I mean, right. The, the impact, the footprint is giant. So, Mark, what do you think is is maybe the reasons behind it or things we can attribute to that safety record? Is it because, uh, you know, they're driving so many more miles, but is it because of the, the training that they have? Is it because of the equipment that's available to them? Is it because of just a conscious understanding of the consequences of, of an accident when you do have a vehicle that size? You know, there are there's no such thing as a, as a fender bender. What would you attribute it to? Well, um, when you've got a vehicle that size, it, it is more than likely that if it is involved in an accident, it's going to be uh, unfortunately very terrible. It's 80,000 pounds, and it's 65-plus uh, feet long. It's, it's an enormous vehicle. Um, with a lot of these folks, uh, the older truckers were mentored, and some of the younger ones are, too, Unfortunately, right now, there actually is no requirement for so much as one hour of training behind the wheel before someone applies to get a commercial driver's license. This is something the truckers themselves have wanted to change for years. Uh, because, as I said, a lot of the older ones, they were mentored. They worked with an older, more experienced driver. They learned the ropes. But ultimately, it comes down to this. They want to get home to their families when they're done with their work, just the same as everyone else. Uh, no one's going out there with a death wish. And um, these guys, if you think about it, if they've made it five years in the trucking industry, that's the equivalent of somewhere between 35 and 40 years of a regular car driver in terms of the number of miles. They gain experience very quickly. If they can't handle it, if they cause an accident, odds are they're probably not going to last in that industry. And that's where that turnover comes from. Um, but, uh, these, these folks, they are incredibly careful and, uh, I, I, I will tell you, I don't drive a truck. I am not a truck driver. I work with them. I talk with them. I interview them. I bring news to them, but, uh, these guys are just amazing. I've done ride-alongs with some of these folks and uh, there's one in particular, a guy named Dale. I call him my Zen trucking master because he's <laughs> not just looking at the traffic immediately around his truck, he's looking up to a mile ahead, trying to spot problems before they can become problems. Um, they really do regard this as a profession, and they they treat it that way, and I think that's a lot of that safety record. Well, before we go to, uh, before we take our break and we come back and we've got one of these top topics that we want to hit on, you mentioned as far as there, there isn't a required sort of educational piece in order to, to get that CDL, but the CDL itself, and you mentioned also, too, is that you're getting that education, whether it's mentoring by other drivers or just that experience that you get early on from on the road. But a CDL is is kind of, I mean, more than kind of, it's pretty tough to get, right? I mean, there's you've got to study for that. You've got to be at least, you know, a, a somewhat talented or accomplished driver in order to, to even pass that test, right? Uh, there's that. There's also medical requirements. You've got to take a DOT physical exam at DOT Department of Transportation and it is not the easiest exam in the world for a lot of people to pass. Um, but uh, honestly, a lot of the truckers tell me they don't think the requirements to get a CDL are strict enough. They want them to be stricter. And that's one of the interesting things is I think uh, the people pushing the hardest for tougher safety standards are the truckers themselves. I think where the 
uh, kind of disconnect come in comes in when people want to, uh, for example, they want to put uh, certain types of technology on the truck that people outside the industry think will make it safer. A lot of the truckers who have experience with technology tell you, actually, this makes me less safe. And the big problem is getting people to listen to the people who are actually driving the truck. To be able to get, you know, you know, I get, I get it. I think that's so important, right? To be have that essential voice at the table when it comes not only to the technology side, advancements on the equipment, policy making, right? And some of the rules and regulations that they're going to be the ones having to deal with. It would be great to have their voice in, uh, at the table as those, those kind of policies are shaped and formed. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about uh, the trucking concerns uh, factored into mileage-based user fee. This is one of the topics that we had for it. 312-981-7200. If, uh, if you've got questions, you can go ahead and call in uh, and weigh in with Mark. Uh, we're going to join our conversation with him when we come back. Keep it here at Stain on uh, 720 WGN. Seven twenty, W. Janet is Dane here with you until four a.m. In for Nick D. And uh, continuing our conversation with uh, the host and program director for Landline, now covering the trucking industry, the one and only Mark Reddick. Mark, welcome back. To be with you. Well, before we went to break, we talked a little bit about the importance of having truckers and the trucking industry at the table when a lot of these changes uh, happen, especially when whether it's equipment, whether it's policies and some of those things. I know that that whole mileage based user fee model, even when, you know, as normal motorists, when they see that, you know, as you, you kind of do what you can to have a car that gets great gas mileage or maybe do this or that in order to improve what it is that you're doing and save costs for yourself. And then you feel like it's being circumvented where the government says, well, yeah, maybe your car gets, you know, 60 miles to the gallon or maybe it's electric or whatever, but we're going to charge you for how many miles you actually use. When it comes to the trucking industry, talk a little bit about that. I know you had an article recently where, you know, what it means to the trucking industry, why that system, you know, will not work and why it's not a cookie cutter fit for all trucks. Well, you know, one of the things is, first of all, um, trucks are paying a fuel tax that's incredibly hefty. And part of it is uh, that in some cases they're paying a higher fuel tax in certain states at the federal level, um, and they are paying it on, on every gallon, but a lot of trucks are getting around five miles per gallon, and uh, they'll be buying, you know, 200 gallons is not an unusual purchase for them. Here, here's a good comparison. If you're just talking about the federal fuel tax, the average sedan that you or I own, gasoline-powered, is probably paying around $96 a year to the federal government in fuel tax, which if you think about the American interstate and national highway system, is kind of a bargain. Um, a truck is probably paying 6500 to $7,000 in fuel taxes. They also are paying an excise tax whenever they buy tires. They also have uh, what's called a heavy vehicle use tax of about $550 every year. And if you buy a new truck, you're going to pay a sales tax on that to the federal government to help fund highways, which can run around $18,000. These folks are paying enormous quantities of money into this system. But when you're talking about a vehicle miles traveled, a lot of the concerns are about privacy. How do they calculate, for example, what state you're running in? Well, they're going to have to track your travel. 
I think that makes not only truckers, but a lot of regular people outside the trucking industry nervous. Um, some localities have uh, a fuel tax of some kind, so now they're going to have to track maybe in some areas what cities you're going to. Uh, they might have to track what kind of road you're on. Um, you're talking about GPS tracking, and that's, that's a privacy concern. Um, but I think a lot of it with trucks is they're concerned that this will not replace the fuel tax, that it may end up being in addition to the fuel tax. Wow. Um, and also, how are they going to make sure that this is what in government they say is revenue neutral, that they're not just piling a lot more money out of the public, be it regular motorists or truckers, uh, to pay for the highway system? The fuel tax really does have a lot of fairness built into it. And you mentioned people that really work hard at getting good fuel economy on their cars. Well, this takes away the ins- part of the incentive for that by basically making you pay the same thing, whether you're getting good fuel economy or not. It's We really have a, a somewhat complex system for financing our highways that sounds simpler than it is. And if you start upsetting parts of that apple cart, you know, are you making people that are already paying a disproportionate share and making them pay more? It's, you know, it's the kind of thing where you, when you look at different States, you see differences. And it's one of the things, one of the first things that people take notice of is differences in the road. And certainly some of it, you know, if it's a, if it gets a lot of traffic, obviously more wear and tear, but there are some States that seem to have a lot of interstate traffic that seem to have better roads or they're able to take care of the roads or less tolls on the system. When it comes to the government, oftentimes, and, and you hit on it is that, you know, it's more money just is, is more money. I think the toll system, when it first happened here in the, uh, in the state of Illinois, I think it was going to be temporary, right? It was going to be to, to fund something for a certain amount of time, and then the tolls would magically go away. Of course, they haven't gone away. They've, uh, they've increased, <laughs> and they've doubled, and, and all of that. Do you think, and if you could speak to this a little bit, when it comes to just adding on extra money, you know that there'll never be an end to the amount of money needed to do things, and if you feel that there was a lot of thought put into the original fuel tax that accommodated for trucks and trucking is that there is a lack of representation at the table to be able to say, Hey, wait a minute. Or, Hey, did you consider this? And that sometimes maybe these, these decisions are being made without the best interest of the men and women in the industry. It's really easy to pile on a group that's relatively small in comparison to the overall population. Um, You know, Three million or three and a half million truckers nationwide sounds like a lot. Not so much when you compare it to the 300 million plus people that are part of our population in the United States. And so it gets very easy to say, oh, we'll make the trucks pay. A lot of states will try the trick of saying, well, they're not paying their fair share while they go through our state. But here's an interesting thing. Truckers pay their fuel tax based on where they run their miles. We just pay at the pump with our cars. They may pay at the pump, but let's say they buy fuel in Colorado and go through Missouri and Kansas on the way to Illinois. Any mile run outside Colorado, Colorado's got to refund that money to the trucker, and then they've got to pay the fuel tax based on the miles they run in Kansas, Missouri, and Illinois. So they're paying for every mile, and that's one of the things why they don't like tolls, They're already paying for every mile they run on those highways, as are all of us through the regular fuel tax. Um, 
you know, you're right about tolls. There's only one place I know that ever followed through on their promise, and that is the state of Kentucky. One after another, they took down the toll booths, and I don't think there's one left in that state right now. Wow. Um, and they had an entire system of interstate-style highways they called the parkways. They crisscross all over Kentucky. All originally toll, all the tolls are gone. These things were all told to pay for the initial construction, with the idea being that after they were built, they could be maintained with the fuel tax paid on the roads. Truckers kind of view this as double taxation, kind of because it is. Um, and that, again, is, is a real problem in their eyes. I, I'm kind of lucky. I, I lived as a kid up in the Chicago area. That's where I learned how to drive. I remember all the toll roads. The state of Missouri does not have one toll road. <laughs> not one. Uh. And Kansas has one toll road, just the one, and you can cross the entire uh, state of Kansas north to south, basically. I think the last time I did that, it ran me about 25 bucks for the entire state. Um Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we 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 mentioned a little bit of the differences, you know, between one car over another. They're not all created equal. Some get great gas mileage, some don't. And so in the minute or so before we go to the break, one of the things that's in this um in this article is that one trait one rate uh for all trucks doesn't work. Is it because there's just such a difference in whether it's the size of truck or is it differences in the technology? Like w- w- what is the reason? Obviously, you know, they're bigger than cars. You can't do it the same as cars, but as far as trucks, why not one rate? The the, the trucking industry is an industry that is incredibly diverse. People tend to think that it's all a truck pulling a regular trailer. But there's people that are pulling refrigerated trailers that are burning diesel fuel to keep things refrigerated. And those of us eating uh, frozen food like the fact that it's not spoiled. Um, There are heavy haul trucks that are hauling uh, amazing weights and amazing size objects. We've all seen them out there. It could be something as simple as the blade on a windmill or something like that. Um, But it's they pay extra in the way of permits for that. There's, again, it's just a very, very complicated system. And, uh, and this is just, you know, me looking at it as someone who's observed it for a while. Um, one size fits all rarely works in trucking because there is no one size. Um, I know that's, that, that sounds like a little bit indefinite, but without getting really deep into the weeds on it, it's kind of hard to describe the difficulties in that. Nope. Um, I think there's so many differences, not only in the individuals, but the kind of trucks they're doing, the jobs they're doing, the way that they're traveling. And so it's a case by case basis. And that makes sense. There's a lot of examples out there in the world. And this is certainly one of them. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Mark Reddick. We're going to talk about safety for, and not just safety on the roadways. Anytime you get into an 80,000 pound vehicle and you're driving for hours and hours and you're doing all of those things for an extended period of time, there's a certain amount of inherent danger in that. But it as a profession, especially in this day and age, you know, we've got whether it's the pandemic and COVID-19 and we've got here in Chicago, all of the, you know, all of the different exits are blocked by uh, streets and sand trucks because it's not necessarily there's some safety issues when it comes to some of the unrest and the riots and all the things that happen in all the communities around the country. So we're going to talk with Mark Reddick about safety in the profession. We come back. Keep it here. It's Dane on 720 WGN.
720 WGN, it is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago Skyline Studio. Tom Hush in the booth playing the hits. Uh, all those uh, great bumpers that you know and love. And continuing our conversation uh, with Mark Reddick, host, program director, Landline Now, covering the trucking industry. And before we went uh, to our last break, we talked a little bit about the inherent danger of the trucking industry, what it has always kind of been, kind of meant, maybe some new dangers or challenges that are going on uh, today. You, you think about this, even on a perfectly sunny day, you have mechanical errors, you have just all the things that could happen, whether it's you know terrain or mountains or rivers or bridges or any kind of thing that would... Uh, be a certain amount of danger that is kind of built into the industry, built in uh, to the profession. And, you know, then you look at some of the situations, you know, we have now. I remember, I don't know if this is, you know, a great example, but when I think of danger to a trucker, I think of Reginald Denny, I think of the L.A. riots, I think of him being pulled out of the car or out of the cab of the truck. Uh, and attacked. He was just driving. He was just a truck driver driving something, delivering something somewhere. And and sometimes danger can come find you uh, as well. So on the line with us again, Mark Reddick. Mark, welcome back. I'm glad to be with you. Yeah. So let's let's talk about it. Is it the kind of thing that just isn't isn't discussed, or is it just understood, or are there kind of more whether movements in the right direction for kind of getting together, hashing it out, and discussing danger in the industry? Uh, there's always an ongoing discussion, and it looms very large. You mentioned a key name by mentioning Reginald Denny, uh, who was uh, darn near beaten to death during L.A. riots, I believe, from the Rodney King uh, incident. But, you know, uh, there's people that have died in, I don't know how you would phrase it, but engaged in activities that are entirely innocent. And a good example, another name that looms large in trucking, but maybe isn't as well known to the general public, is a guy named Jason Rivenberg. Jason was a family guy and a trucker. He was trying to deliver a load. The receiving company said, you can't park on our lot. It was a secure lot. Sorry, you can't come in here and stay overnight. So he ends up parking in the parking lot of basically an empty abandoned gas station and a guy breaks into his truck and robs him and kills him. And, you know, the guy that robbed him got $5. And the Rivenberg family, his wife, Hope, and those kids, they, they lost Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, that type of thing happens with very, very, very sad frequency. Uh, I think it was back in 14, there was a guy named uh, Mike Beglin. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Um, he couldn't find a safe place to park in Detroit where he was uh, picking up a load. And he parked in a place, it's a parking lot, again, of an abandoned building, but used frequently by truckers. These folks have to take a required rest period. It's required by federal regulation. And when they run out of hours to run under the regulation, they have to take that rest. And they're basically where they are for the next 10 hours. Uh, Mike Beglin, again, was robbed, and they not only killed him, they set his truck on fire to hide the evidence. Jeez. And again, you've got another family who is is absent a husband and a father and a son over a very small amount of money. Um, so truckers just trying to get their rest because so many places that they pick up or deliver to are in kind of sketchy areas in terms of the crime statistics. Well, just, uh, Not everybody is delivering to a Neiman Marcus, you know? 
Well, I mean, there's, a, I think, inherent danger in some of the areas. And well, also, too, is that you mentioned that they've got to get their rest. And oftentimes, and if you could speak to this, it isn't necessarily because they can't keep their eyes open and they've got to sleep. We've all been there and, you know, taking a nap on the whether it's the side of the road or pulled over if we've ever done a road trip. These are required, you know, by law where they could get either a fine or a ticket or their license affected or pulled if they're caught driving. Uh, in those situations, so they're obligated. Did, does it seem like the people who are doing this understand? Certainly, they see you know what's in the trailer as the potentially valuable. It's kind of like you know what's behind door number one, right? It could be something great oh, yeah. in there, and so you're looking at that as a target. Um, so, talk a little bit about the whether it's are there extenuating circumstances where you can feel that you are you're, or could potentially be in danger where you're going to want to maybe be able to drive to maybe a safe place. And then also, too, is a lot of times, and I don't know if the listeners know this, but the people receiving the shipments, oftentimes there's there's restrictive you know, hours to which they accept it. And so sometimes the truck drivers are put in a position where they've got to wait around for hours, even just because that's the policy of the company they're delivering to. Yeah, and the hours that truckers are held to, their time is regulated. And I, I can't say this for certain, but I've got to think there's very, very few people in our society who are regulated so tightly as truckers. They can only drive 11 hours in a day. However, after eight hours, they have to take a break. Oh, and it has to be, you know, they can't drive one inch after they've been on duty for 14 hours. And that sounds like a lot, but they're not doing this all the time. Um, And they have to take 10 hours of rest. Now, there's some circumstances where they can have a little flexibility. There's an attempt underway now to add a little bit. But uh, one of the examples I use is, If a trucker pulls into a rest area to go to the bathroom, that trucker has to put where he stopped and why he stopped and what time it was and how long he was there to go to the bathroom on a form available upon demand by any law enforcement officer. How many of us would live in a world where we're required to report to the government when we go to the bathroom? But that's called a change of duty status. Under the regulations, you're going from on duty and driving to off duty. That has always just amazed me. How many people would literally live with a world where they had to report to the federal government when they went to go to the bathroom? But they have to. You can see where some of, you know, whether it's drivers trying to you know, get a leg up or try to, to get where they need to go or trying to catch up if they're a little behind, you know, would try to, to drive and maybe push a little farther than maybe they should. And so you can understand maybe the motivations of some of that. I don't understand the, you know, the going to the to the bathroom part. I think that that time should be your time. How, you know, to have you have to chronicle that I think is is a little demeaning when it comes to like hazard pay. Is there anything? So let's, and I don't know how you would, you know, quantify or, or even if that would even be possible to decide, well, this area is, and you use the word sketchy, but maybe more dangerous than others for the driver. Right. So that's at least um, accounted for, you know, so like, well, so that they understand. Cause oftentimes I think they're, they're preyed upon because maybe in some uh, situations they're not as familiar with the areas they could be, but it could also be, you know, in a natural area, you know, we've all driven through, or at least a lot of us have driven through the mountains and you've got those, you know, runoff areas and those are, are dangerous too, right? Is there a place or, or, or some kind of system for, let's say I'm doing the air quotes, hazard pay in trucking? No, no. In fact, uh, pay in trucking, when you adjust it for inflation is lower than it's been probably in my lifetime. And I am not a young man. (laughs) Um, 
you know, if, if, if you look at the actual value of what they get, um, it's, it's really, to my mind, almost embarrassing how little truckers are paid, especially when you add in things like the restrictions on their time and being away from their families. Again, 200 to 300 nights a year out of 365 nights. Um, no, they, they are paid for the miles that they run and nothing else. And, in fact, that's one of the other things. Some truckers will spend anywhere from 20 to 40 hours a week on required job duties for which they are not paid one dime um, because they're only paid when the truck is moving. So anything else they do on duty simply is not compensated. This is the, the big secret that I think a lot of people don't realize about how truckers live is they're not really treated very well. They're not paid very well. It's amazing to me how many people are dedicated to doing this. And I thank God that they are because I like getting groceries. I like having a roof over my head. I'm getting some work done on my house. Well, guess what? All of the materials came on a truck. I like having clothing on my back. I like having a car that I can drive. Those came on trucks. Um, and these people really do sometimes just go through hell to give us our basic needs. I, I think that's one of the things the pandemic did for us is it made us realize the real meaning of essential worker. Yep. Um, some of the people we thought were important weren't very important, and some of the people paid the least we realized are the ones we need the most. Well, and, it, we, it you, is very dangerous. You look at that footprint and what it is that they have, the impact, and you know what it means to, to all aspects of your life. And it's surprising, right, that there isn't that, that consideration. I think it's a lack of... Uh, you don't want to necessarily say leadership, but a voice, right? When it comes to whether it's being over litigated, when it's being, when those policies are being formed, you know, there's got to be somebody pushing from the other side that can really kind of have the full weight of what it means and what the industry means. And it, maybe it's just not a unified voice that's doing it. And, and so therefore they're just getting kind of pushed around, uh, taxed, kind of lost in the shuffle in a bunch of different ways. And it's, it's unfortunate. We've talked about some of the negative sides mm-hmm. of things and, and some of the ways that the industry is, is, is hurting and there are challenges. And we look at some of the upsides on the technology side, but there's also some negative sides for that too. So when we come back from this break, we're going to continue our conversation with Mark Reddick. We're going to talk about, um, automated vehicles and when you think about that with all of the um the trials and tribulations of 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 the drivers and the operators on the trucking side the thought that they're they're going to be phased out or somehow replaced by automated trucks is just an additional um insult but maybe that won't be the ultimate and uh, and final result of it so keep it here we'll continue our conversation with mark it's Dane here on 720 wgn Seven twenty, WGN Dean here with you until four AM and continuing our conversation on the world of truck trucking with the host program director for Landline now covering that industry, the one and only Mark Reddick. Mark, uh, welcome back. Glad to be here. This is something that we have been you know, as as I'm consistently amazed, you know, with whether it's the streaming services that you can have for all manners of entertainment or what our cell phone can do and all that. And just the idea of a, of driverless cars is kind of being thrown at us all the time. We feel like we're going to be experiencing things in the, in the Jetsons in no time soon. And, and when it comes to trucking, there's, you know, a lot of, at least in concept, some natural 
uh, projections like, wouldn't that be great if you know trucks could just magically you know drive from here to there? Then the reality sets in of of whether you know you look at just how finely tuned a lot of those operators are, a lot of the judgment that has to go into play, a lot of the situations that aren't you know just so cookie cutter point A to point B that trucks find themselves in, and then you've got the you know the undeniable liability issues when let's say one of these driverless trucks runs over a you know a class of kindergartners crossing the street and and all that that means um on the liability side and it's just like okay well i don't know that that'll ever happen so so mark what do you think is 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 it close is the technology there is it going to be sort of a hybrid cyborg thing where you know we're going to have a lot of technology assisting the operators what do you see there's a lot of people pushing for assist technology but one of the things I love about the numerous studies that have come out, uh, the latest one from MIT that say long-haul trucking may be the first one to have truly driverless vehicles, is they always assume that everybody's going down an interstate. Most truck miles are on two-lane roads, not interstates. It's a, There's a lot of misconceptions built into uh, these studies that just aren't the reality. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if you spent a lot of time in Colorado, but there's a, a road there called Wolf Creek Pass that gets a pretty decent amount of truck traffic. It's a massive steep grade going up a mountain and then a massive steep grade going down the mountain, and it's twisting and curving the whole way. Um, the other thing is they can't even stop very small sports cars or compact cars in these automated car tests from running into things. Um, we can't keep a little car on the road, but we're going to uh, let these 80,000-pound trucks be driven by computers. I don't know about your computer. Mine's not that reliable. Uh, you know, I was on the phone with, with your producer and telling him that I had been trying to get Skype to work for a half an hour to 45 minutes before I went on the air to contact you. And... Because it just wouldn't work. and But they want that type of machine to put an 80,000-pound freight-carrying vehicle on the road with your family. I, I think this is much farther off. It, it looks, much farther off. It works sometimes. It works most of the time. But it's when it doesn't work and the consequences are so big that um, that it's just, you know, I think it's an unacceptable risk. When it comes to people, we understand that people are fallible. They're going to occasionally run into things, and we've got an insurance system that accepts that. And I think as a society, we've accepted that this is just the way that it works, and then we've got a way to compensate people for when that happens. When you have a technology, I think there's sort of this higher expectation that it's going to be perfect all the time. And so if, if cost savings is the reason behind it, uh, I think one of these, you know, issues where it runs into something invariably is going to take away whatever kind of money you think you're saving. It's going to, I think it's going to take all of that away and put you back um, at the drawing board. So we've got three one two nine eight one seventy two hundred. If you want to add your thoughts or, or ask Mark a question, we do have Trucker Rich on the line. Rich, welcome to the show. Uh, good evening, guys. Every time you guys bring up uh, autonomous trucks and cars. I think the people who are designing this stuff should have to watch Maximum Overdrive at least three times before they even say they want to do it. <laughs> you sure it's not white line fever, Rich? No, well, that too, but Maximum Overdrive, where the trucks are all taken over by a alien, and there's no humans in them, and they force them to pump fuel and run over people and stuff. 
you know, pop machines go berserk. They're like yelling guns, firing cans out at kids and stuff. Rich, we did a we did a story with the you know the aliens and uh, and some of that stuff that's happening for the Defense Department. Some of the uh, disclosures. You're not maybe too far off from maximum overdrive, right? And you were talking about the mileage of a truck versus their cars. I've got a six year old pickup truck that's got thirty nine thousand miles on it, and I've got five hundred thousand on the trucks I've driven in the same amount of time. Wow! So, so. I save miles on my car and put them on the truck. So, Rich, before we let you go, do, do you see it happening anytime soon, or is this just sort of a fantasy that they're trying to, to put out there? I think it's a fantasy, because look at how many problems that Tesla's got, you know. People think autopilot is, I can go to sleep and still get there, you know. So I think that's the way it's going to be. I mean, there may be stuff to help the driver. Like, you know, I mean, the Mac I'm driving has got this thing called predictive cruise so if i've got a dedicated route that i'm on cruise control my truck knows where the hills are and will accelerate prior to the hill and then automatically decelerate as soon as it gets to the top of the hill so that's enough technology for me so i appreciate it thanks for the call yeah, so you think about this, Mark, and that's you mentioned autopilot, and that's one of the things Tom and I were talking about off the air when we were looking at, you know, what are some of the parallels where you can see that, and maybe in the, you know, like you have with your with your jet, you know, airliners, where you know the pilot is there obviously to make the decisions, but you, you know, there's some things in between that it can sort of pick up the slack, and just like Richard said, he knows there's a hill coming up, and he would have to do that, but to have the assistance from the technology, I think is is helpful. Maybe it helps the driver to you know get through certain situations maybe it helps with fatigue maybe maybe it's just something for technology to do right it is but once again we're kind of coming full circle to the start of our conversation tonight which is they need to actually talk to experienced truckers and i'll give you an example um when they first started coming out with lane departure warning systems which on the face i look at and think that's a good idea Well, they were estimating that they would start this thing if the truck left the center of the lane, and they would immediately start making a noise like you were on a rumble strip at the side. And I was at a a presentation on this, and the guy who was a trucker raised his hand. He says, well, all of us drive to the far right side if we're in the right lane to put as much distance between us and the cars as possible. So you have a system designed to basically give the trucker a constant false negative. Another thing, or, uh, there's a real push right now for these automatic emergency braking systems in trucks. Again, that seems like a really good idea. There's problems with it, and one of them, a very experienced driver with a long, safe record, who I know personally, was driving right up there in the Chicago area, and he was in a particularly busy time of day on the expressway. Every time a car jumped in front of him, his truck would jam the brakes. Jeez. And he said it was literally like, bam, 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 bam. How can you drive when your truck, outside of your control, is hitting the brakes that often? Um, so I, I think that these things have the potential to help, but we have to, I think, be realistic about the limitations of the technology, and we have to have the people creating the technology get out of the computer lab 
and get into the trucks with these truckers and learn how it really works and stop working with assumptions. Yeah, how, how many times does that happen in life in a bunch of different ways where you think it sounds good on paper, we use that, but when it gets into practice, there's things that just weren't considered, and you got to, maybe the heart is in the right place, but the head isn't there, and there's not enough of the right heads at the table to be able to have and continue that conversation. I think giving uh, truckers a voice is something that um, that I'm excited about and that I'm excited you guys are doing too. let the listeners know we're talking with Mark Reddick, host, program director for Landline Now. And Mark, as we let you go, give information so people, some of the listeners or people out there in the trucking industry or want to get more information and find out what's going on can can stay in and uh, continue that conversation with you. Absolutely. Um, you can go to landline.media. That's the website that has the information from our show, Landline Now, and also our magazine, Landline Magazine. Um, we're also on Sirius XM Satellite Radio on Channel 146, which is the trekking channel called The Road Dog. Uh, what a pleasant name. <laughs> and, uh, we're, we're on at 6 p.m. Central every night. And uh, uh, so it, there's a lot of places that you can check it out and see what's going on and uh, we have podcasts at our website where you can hear what we're doing. And uh, really, Landline Magazine, I have to give uh, props to my colleagues there. They really do one of the best news reports in the trucking industry. And uh, you really can find out a lot about how it's working out there. Well, it's a great resource. It's a great resource to, to have not only for our listeners to understand a little bit uh, about what is one of those industries that has such a big impact on that. And, of course, for the men and women uh, operators in the industry themselves to have that as a resource, not only to, to for entertainment and event and, and whatever they get out of the podcast, but also to have these issues kind of hashed out and discussed in the public forum. I think it's important. So, Mark, thanks so much for what you're doing. Thanks for jumping on the show tonight. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoy it every time. All right. Thanks. Wow. Okay. So when we come back from this break, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about something that also has an impact and effect on so many aspects of our life. It's eating. It's food. We all do it. We've all been doing it for a long time. And uh, we're going to have Marnie Shure coming on. She's the editor-in-chief from the takeout.com. So stay tuned for that. Keep it here, too. We're going to talk with blockbuster Blake Stubbs about a new uh, legal decision that's changing the uh, the theater studio industry. Mario Andretti is going to be joining us to talk about the first ever uh, Indy 500 that is going to be happening, of course, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway without 400,000 fans uh, as well, and we're going to talk about road tripping in the RV industry, and uh, and with Greg Ranoff about rock music and concerts. We are missing them uh, as well. So stay tuned. We're going to have Marnie Sure when we come back. Right now, uh, it's time for the news. I love it. 720 WGN, it is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio, Hungry Eyes. We've all got them, right? And this is going to help out and excited to have on the line with us. And this is something we talk about things that apply to everybody. Everybody has a role to play in the world of food, whether you're a participant uh, on the eating side, and most of us are at some point, uh, or whether you're helping to produce it, if you're a chef, if you're a restaurateur, or if you're writing about it, right, and kind of bringing us uh, in the literary world and kind of combining it on the culinary side. Excited to have on the line with us. She is the editor-in-chief of the takeout.com, the one only Marnie Sure, Marnie, welcome to WGN. 
Thank you so much, Dane. Good to be here. It's good to have you. It, it's good to have you. It kind of makes sense. This topsy turvy world when so much is uh, is kind of up in the air in the world, and 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 to kind of make sense of some of the the food situation. I saw one of the stories about food prices starting to go down, except for hot dogs. Is there any kind of insight? We all sort of understand if there's an explosion overseas in the Middle East, the gas prices are going to go up, even though it doesn't seem to make sense uh, all the time. But when it comes to food prices, is it all based on supply and demand? The kind of things that we're looking at or maybe popularity you know something comes into favor and then the value is increased how how does it work as far as food prices well you kind of hit the nail on the head there and named several different factors and they're all at play especially when it comes to food um with hot dogs specifically it plays into the larger trend with you know um with COVID 19 people are seeking comfort food and what did everybody eat when they were little they ate hot dogs um, on top of which, it's one of the few um, types of meat that initially didn't get more expensive. You know, it stayed relatively cheap, even as things like chicken steak and the other like whole cuts of meat got more expensive. So it's been reliable and it's easy to cook. People are at home maybe cooking for themselves for the first time these last few months and Pretty much everybody knows how to cook a hot dog, so it's reliable, and it's fast, and it's easy, and it's cheap. And so now, sensing that demand, maybe people aren't really letting the, the prices go down any further on the humble hot dog. Well, Marty, you mentioned it, and it's it's over. It's, it's that backstory. It's the sort of soundtrack of our lives kind of thing. The versatility, whether it's over a campfire stuck to a stick or whether it's cut up inside some macaroni and cheese, you know, I think the, the ways that hot dogs can be uh, prepared and enjoyed is great. You know, I, I think it's one of those things. It, does it come down to whether it's popular or not, too? Because in the summertime, we think about uh, hot dogs and, and or maybe in a certain region, you know, ice in the when they say you could sell ice to the Eskimos, you know, maybe that's not uh, something that would have a high value here. Whereas maybe in a place like Chicago, where we enjoy and eat a lot of hot dogs, it would be more valuable. Does it go by whether, you know, the supply and demand in a, in a specific region for the value? That's a great a great thought. I mean, the 4th of July, certainly hot dogs are in high demand. Um, people do associate them with summertime, but that might actually be because of the sort of events we eat them at, like baseball season, eating a, ball, a ballpark hot dog. But, you know, right now, why limit ourselves? We can make a hot dog any day of the year that we please. <laughs> I know that you wrote uh, one of the articles in the takeout.com with the listeners know we're talking with Marnie Shore, editor in chief, and you had a fantasy football, not fantasy, it wasn't necessarily fantasy football draft. It was a fantasy best ballpark food draft. And because we're missing all of that stuff, not only can we not actually go to the games anymore, we're watching them on television, seeing cardboard cutouts of people that aren't us uh, back in the stands. And, but we want, because really, and I think Cubs fans get a little bit of a bad rap that they're maybe not as in tune to the game as maybe they should be. And oftentimes the accoutrements of the baseball game experience, whether it's the beer or the hot dogs, takes precedence oftentimes uh, than what's happening on the field. And so... You guys decided to, if you could describe it, describe what, what break it down and, and make us feel bad for the places we can't go and enjoy, or maybe to recognize some of those things we're missing and appreciate most. Absolutely. Our, we, we regularly hold fantasy food drafts, and I highly recommend not only reading our drafts, but doing this with your friends because it's really fun. You choose a topic uh, or a, a category of food, and in this case, we chose the ballpark. And you think about all the things they sell at a typical ballpark, including some regional specialties that they maybe only have at ballparks at a few cities around the country. And you try to draft 
your best team? What's your best lineup of all these different foods? And whoever is left with the best five picks gets the votes. Um, I I won't I I don't know who's winning so far. I think that Amy and myself were neck and neck on the last one because she got hot dogs in her list, but I got corn dogs in mine. <laughs> wow, well, corn dogs are well. I don't know. It, is there some extra value because of maybe the traditional role that that particular food? You know, like Cracker Jack, right? Do you eat Cracker Jack on a regular basis? Mm-hmm. No, maybe you had it in your lunch as a kid. You tolerated. It. No, you really liked it, right? Because it had those tattoos that you could just get wet and. <laughs> But other than that, you don't really see Cracker Jack. But then when you're at the ballpark, maybe you'll maybe you'll eat it. Is there a precedent set for the role, maybe that kind of history and legacy that a that a food product has? Because I got to tell you, Southside for the White Sox, they have always had really stepped up food and uh, and really a great food scene and a lot of different things that you can enjoy that go far beyond the traditional ballpark fare. And Wrigley is doing a bunch of things, too. They're having a lot of celebrity chefs in on things. So how, how do you kind of rank them? Is it just, you know, how much you particularly personally like it or maybe just kind of that that general perceived value in the public? Yeah, for the purposes of the draft, you definitely want to hit on those general public beloved items, but you can always make a case for them based on your personal preference. And for me, when I'm sitting in that, well, I go, I go to the, I go to Sox Park. I'm a Sox fan because my husband is, and nice. he's he's really converted me. <laughs> but uh, but the food also converted me because, as you said, the park has always had excellent options. And when I'm sitting in that park. I don't want anything that's going to be hard to eat, you know, like accessibility and ease of consumption is kind of the best uh, factor for ballpark food, in my opinion. Yeah, no, you're right. Well, see, I had not even considered that, but of course that makes sense too. You can dream up all of your scenarios and, and put that dream team together on the food side for the ballpark, but if it's not mobile then it just doesn't work. You know, you, a bowl of lobster bisque just isn't great, you know, as that fly ball comes to you, right? You've got to have something uh, that fits as well. So we're going to take a break. and we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Marnie Sure, She's the editor-in-chief of thetakeout.com. Got a lot of topics in here, some with some of our favorite. We talked about favorite ballpark foods, but some of our favorite sort of franchises. And I know the restaurant industry has been hit so hard. And But we always, we kind of think that it's the independent restaurants only, but I know a lot of those big chains are also being uh, hit and having to kind of figure out a different path and pivot and become more things to more people. And we'll talk about that when we come back. Keep it here. It's Dane on 720 WGN. belong to the city, right? I'm naming the bumpers. I can do it. Uh, 720 WGN. It is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago in until 4 a.m. And on the line with us, continuing our conversation uh, with the editor-in-chief of thetakeout.com, Marnie. Sure, Marnie, welcome back. Thank you. When it comes to restaurant superstars, you know, places that when people come into a town, they feel comfortable with, you know, they're going to want to have not only, you know, food that they can sort of, whether it's a chain, you know, they can count on, it's going to be at a certain level that the, that's accepting, but also has that pizzazz, right? That entertainment value. And one of the topics that we've had here is related to Rainforest Cafe, which has been as surprising as it is, as unactually Chicago as it really is, was a tourist was a tourist attraction. Apparently, uh, unfortunately, it is it is closed. Now, I know that there's a reference to the animatronic uh, gorilla and uh, and the giant tree frog. No mention of the zucchini jungle safari soup or the uh, Caribbean coconut shrimp, which were also fan favorites. But um, but it's sad, right? Rainforest closing. Yeah, 
Yeah, you know, I think it's an easy place to just shrug off and laugh about and make fun of when you see it on the street, you know, with the giant tree frog hanging over, uh, what is that, Rush or whatever street it's hanging on. Um, but it, uh, w- the staff of the takeout actually went for the first time in January of this year to that rainforest cafe that is now closing. <laughs> and I am so glad we caught it when we did because not only was it, still open then and it was obviously dwindling you could tell it was very empty that night but we were so impressed it was like you kind of picture this being like a glorified mall food court with a few jungle accoutrements thrown in there but i was really kind of blown away by the way that they really committed to the theme and they you know the the animatronics were everywhere they did big lighting effects with like rainstorms and everything. And if you're a kid going into that for the first time, you really would be blown away. And there's something to be said for entertainment like that, that you can bring the whole family to. I, I mentioned pizzazz, but yeah, it was a little bit of sh- like, well, more than just a little bit of showtime. I had the opportunity a number of years ago. So it might have been like 10 plus to interview Steve Schussler, who was the guy who created Rainforest Cafe. And so the inspiration wasn't necessarily some big corporate uh, situation like, oh, I know kids love gorillas, so let's do that. Or well, they love rainforests, or we'll do some strobe lights. There was really an authenticity in the inspiration there. I remember one of the stories I was telling Tom uh, before we came into the segment where he was, when he first came up with the concept, he didn't have, I guess, access to as many plastic plants as you probably experienced when you guys were there. And so he had to grow all of his own plants. And he actually had, he got busted in a, a drug bust. Well, well, a potential drug bust because they thought he had a marijuana grow house because he was using that much electricity and had grow lights and everything. But he was just trying to grow plants, you know, on the authenticity side for rainforest. Now that is Cafe. dedication, isn't it? <laughs> yes. That is dedication. <laughs> yeah. So, I was, and I saw in there too, you're like, well, wondering what's going to happen with some, with the, whether it's the frog or the gorilla, uh, Chicago area people will remember there used to be a place uh, called Adventureland. And one of the things about it was there were giant, I don't know, 50 foot tall metal characters. And there was one from, there was an, like an American Indian one. There was a pirate one. There was a sort of a patriot revolutionary war guy. I can't remember who the other person was, but those people, when that park closed many, many years ago, those, (laughs) those big figures got work elsewhere. You know, one was like the cowboy one was over at Big Ben's tire barn. And you'll see these guys and kind of getting some work, you know, outside of their kind of theme park days. So what do you think? Who would want I kind of want it, you know, the big tree frog or an animatronic gorilla. That's a nice conversation starter in the basement. Yeah, I mean, if you can fit it through the doorway. I mean, I honestly, like, the practical answer is probably sending that giant tree frog to Lincoln Park Zoo or something like that. But, yes, the the real answer is that I want to put it on my roof. <laughs> just for myself <laughs> no so so it's it's closed and there's you know in, in a non it's not you know there's a lot of challenges out there in the restaurant world but like you had mentioned rainforest cafe the writing may have been you know on the on the side of the tree or, or whatever for a while now is is it just this location because they do have multiple locations i think they had quite a few around the country or maybe in airports is it is it the whole chain that's closing or just here in chicago well, it certainly um, seems like it's in its uh, final stages of life, shall we say. They've been shuttering locations in a number of places, uh, including, I believe, Woodfield has already shuttered um, that location. But, uh, you know, they they have been opening new locations 
also, which is kind of surprising, but not quite as recently as they've been closing them. And that was before uh, coronavirus kind of had its its whole effect on the restaurant industry. And it's, you know, when you've got that kind of square footage to work with, I just don't know how many of those locations will hang on. Maybe in places where they are prominent party destinations, where it's where all the kids have their birthday parties and and things like that. And actually, they do cater weddings as well. They host weddings and stuff like that. So maybe that's something that people do in more in other areas. But uh, yeah, Chicago just couldn't support its Rainforest Cafe, I guess. I know, Marnie, you'd mentioned that your husband is a Sox fan. I don't know that that... Uh, so so you've got that. So you are married. Could you consider or could you imagine yourself having, let's say, a wedding at a rainforest camp? I mean, it takes a village, right? For every baby, for animal rights activists, or maybe they met on a safari or something. Not for everybody, though, right? Right. Well, it's, it's like getting married in a theme park. It's like, as long as you're okay with all the photos and all the mementos from the day being very strictly and aggressively themed to something, then you're golden. And then it's probably a blast. I would love, you know, you've just given me a great story idea. I want to interview people who have gotten married at Rainforest Cafes. <laughs> or, or, I want to hear all about that experience. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that how many you'll find. Maybe there's some. And, yeah. and, or who would want to share? Because, you know, it's, it, is a, it is a wonderful moment, an impactful and important moment, but also sort of a private moment. But I always wondered for those people that want to get married in these non-traditional kind of places, you know, where they're dressed up in football uniforms or, you know, they're just like in these strange or they're scuba diving while, I mean, cause it takes, it takes two because usually there's a check and a balance. Like one spouse could say, wouldn't it be awesome to be you know married wearing a, you know, a bear's costume. And then the other person <laughs> says, absolutely not. I, I just can't accept that. And then you move on. But, but yeah, there's probably some other, like what other restaurants would you think about that would be great candidates for one of these sort of like a theme, uh, you know, wedding or event like that. Sonic. Hard Rock Cafe. Okay, so there you go. No, see, Marty's making sense <laughs> and being serious. Sonic? Well, yeah. Who wouldn't want you? It's a drive-in wedding. Oh, so, you mean, <laughs> so you've got like the roller skater type people yeah, coming the, out? Yeah, you and... get the priest on roller skates, comes on out. You're sitting in your car probably with a slushie or something, maybe a side of tater tots. And then uh, he comes out, and he weds you, and then he... <laughs> You know, you pull away and you're done. It's it's easy. Sounds like it's all figured out. It sounds like you've thought about this a lot. Yeah, well, think, a little bit too much. Now, for for <laughs> the listeners out there, of course, the devotees of the program, they know that Tom was just recently engaged. Yeah, but he did it in a more of a traditional, like actually cool on the side of a mountain thing. He didn't. Yeah, uh, I went up on a rock, Marnie, and then I asked, wow, yeah, yeah. up on a big rock. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, yep. now you have to get married on the side of a mountain too. <laughs> oh boy, oh, that's, that's part just of a it. logistics nightmare. I the could, Sonic sounds easy. Well, I because okay, so here's here's some real world examples of of places where this sort of happens. Is you've got your folks that are addicted to Disney, right? And so they think I see that almost the same as Rainforest Cafe. If you're gonna, you know, have your wedding there, you're, you get the big castle in the background. Maybe you know, maybe Mickey's the best man, and like Daisy Duck is, you know, she's kind of the doing the other stuff. And I'm sure that people do that all the time. Uh, maybe McDonald's too. If you've got the whole group there back in the day when you had Hamburglar and Grimace, you know, they could have them be participants in what could be a, a wedding situation. It certainly keeps the cost of the food down. I mean, you're <laughs> going from like what? $85 a head, hundred dollars a head. All of a sudden it's the cost of a value meal at McDonald's this is genius. That's a good Even idea. Even cheaper than McDonald's. Our staff writer, Alison Robicelli, 
had a White Castle catered wedding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's even cheaper than McDonald's. <laughs> Well, you and so they've got a little bit of street cred on this, Marnie, and you'll probably know about this. And we've done this story, too, is that White Castle, when it comes to Valentine's Day, you know, just another love related uh, kind of holiday and event. They have a big thing where, you know, they That's do right. they do where they'll give you the is it the I don't know if the burgers are heart shaped or they give you so many burgers that you can shape them into the shape of a heart. But right. They do that. Right. They do have the red tablecloth. They do the whole thing in White Castle. Yeah, and I think they might have done like a slider's bouquet or something where there's like a big bunch of them that you can hold in your hand and present to your date. <laughs> That's the number one way to your man's heart, his arteries. <sighs> the number one way to clog his heart. <laughs> yeah. Because you wonder on the marketing side, you got to be innovative. You've got to try new things, especially with the challenges we've got today. But you wonder, you know, what conference table that came up like hey we could own valentine's day we're white castle and people are like yeah that works but it's gotten some play and i know that there's some people that are excited about it and uh, and participate when we come back we're going to talk about another one of uh i don't know if there is anywhere near as beloved or as interesting or as animatronic on the chain side but chili's parent company going on an all virtual restaurant tom you're thinking of cutting corners and saving some costs to do anything virtual is really the way to really <laughs> Make it non-existent and just kind of made up. And, uh, and so we're going to talk with Marnie about that uh, when we come back. We're going to take a quick break. We'll have Marnie Shore on from uh, the takeout.com. We're going to get into Chili's. I hope they have on Chili's if they could do a virtual kids eat free on Tuesday, because that's really one of my most important and favorite parts of yeah. the Chili's world. How do you have one of those giant margaritas virtually? Well, no, don't. don't like, Marnie's got to take some time to think that. about this. Yep. So quick break. Uh, keep it here. It's staying on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you in for Nick D until four a.m. today, and continuing our conversation with the editor and chief of the Takeout dot com, uh, Marnie. Sure, Marnie. Welcome back. Thank you so much. So, Chile is a place that I haven't spent a lot of time at, but the time that I have spent, you know, Tom had mentioned the margaritas. You know, they do some things kind of right. You know, when I'm thinking in my mind, the commercials, it's fun. They've got sort of an eclectic menu that's got so the food is okay. And uh, but okay. it's okay. Well, it's okay. It's okay. It's insane. It's insanely good. It's but same. They kind of market themselves as the kind of fun place that you'll go after work with your coworkers and maybe have a few, you know, beverages, watch some sports, you know, and enjoy some uh, quesadillas or something like that. But they also do have, as a person with kids, they have the I think a kids eat free Tuesday thing. So when you come to virtual, what? Are, well, explain a little bit about the story because I know that we're doing a lot of things, tastings, and a lot we're experiencing a lot of things virtually. But I don't know that you can experience all that. What's Chili got in mind? That's right. So virtual restaurants are a concept that were they were already on the rise prior to the pandemic, but now they're kind of being fast tracked as a response to the pandemic. That makes a lot of sense. Um, there's no dining room, and there is no, uh, you know, presence. There's no brick and mortar that you can go pick up at. It's a delivery concept. You order virtually, you know, uh, online, and the menus are really stripped down. And that's because they want to use. They don't even want to build a kitchen for this thing. It's going to use the kitchens that this company already has. In the case of the Chili's parent company. They'll use Chili's Restaurant Kitchens and Maggiano's Restaurant Kitchens to power concepts like their uh, uh, new restaurant called It's Just Wings. 
and it's just going to be wings. That's that's really what it is, and it's going to use Chili's equipment to make the same foods, but really a pared down menu. And it keeps costs down, it keeps space down, and that way it's kind of top of mind. If you know that wings are what you want to eat that day, you just Google it. It's going to be one of the first things to show up. So this is kind of the virtual restaurant concept that more restaurants companies um, are are dreaming up to combat the seismic changes to the restaurant industry. Keeping it simple, it is what it says. It says what it does. It's just wings. So in case there was any kind of, you know, and I think it keeps the conversations down too because it lets people, hey, what do you have? You know, or if you're at the drive through at a place, you know, you're saying, like, you're making people run through the menu. And if it's just wings, that's what it is. Is it truth in, in advertising? Because I'll have you know, and I think um, people will, will know also that Just Tires is a, is a tire chain, but they also do brakes. They do a lot of other things, too. So it's just wings. Is it really just wings? It's mostly just wings. Uh, it's going to have a few options, not too many options. You can get them, um, you know, boneless or bone-in. You can get them smoked. There's, I think, like 10 sauces that you can choose from. But then in addition to the wings, there's also curly fries, and fried Oreos. So you've got like an appetizer, a main, and a dessert. So they were at least giving you like a whole meal out of it. Wow. Okay. But I like where you're going with this. And I think because it, it, it lets people know kind of what you're doing. This is the wheelhouse. It's mostly just wings, but it makes you, it sort of teases you to think, well, what else could there be? You know, and if there's curly fries, if they're seasoned, and then you've got the Oreos, I think that's something special that needs to make it into, into that conversation as over at the takeout, I'm sure the research and development, you guys have your lab coats on, you're trying to figure out what the trends are. Is is wings one of those things where it's almost like a no-brainer, can't miss, everybody loves those, and they feel maybe with just the size and scope of what it is that they've done with these other um, franchises that, or, or like properties, that they can kind of make space in that market? That is absolutely what it is. I mean, we haven't gotten confirmation as such, but when you think about it, wings do not take a lot of space to make. Um, they are easy to store, easy to order in bulk. Um, everybody really likes them. And they're hard to mess up. You know, the, you can't recall too many terrible chicken wings in your life. The, the threshold of good quality wings, you know, it, it's it's forgiving. And so I think that it's it's a concept that's just really easy to flip the light switch on for. And in fact, another place that has adopted a virtual restaurant wings-only concept is Chuck E. Cheese what? has begun selling um, wings and pizza under its banner Pasquale's Pizza and Wings. So if you ever see Pasquale's on your, you know, Grubhub or whatever else you, you use, um, that's Chuck E. Cheese. And they're using their big kitchens uh, to power this new concept, and it seems to be working for them. They're big, like uh, paper mache headed vermin filled kitchens. I cannot. When we brought up Rainforest Cafe, I thought of you know you've got the um, you're the tree frog and the animatronic gorilla and things that kind of go with the. I I've always been sort of confused by Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, I get it; they're selling fun, and you know, and for kids, you, know, you got a lot of blinking lights, and you got it spits out tickets, and you can play games, and of course, you have pizza and things like that. And so, I get it; it's a place to have your birthday party. But I, I never really understood the idea of using as your main mascot one of probably the top two or three, you know, check boxes for the health department. Like that's your. <laughs> Why don't you have a, like Rochi's pizza or something? I mean, it just seems it just seems like an odd choice, you know. And so, 
I mean, it's like a bold reclaiming of the health inspector narrative. <laughs> yeah, we don't want rats at our restaurant. We want one big giant rat, you know. And his name is Chucky because he's friendly, right? He's he's kind of the the maitre d of of fun. What you got, Tom? Well, I was just gonna say, you know, there was that movie Ratatouille. You know, rats can do some <laughs> some fine cooking if we're going into that realm. Okay. Yeah, maybe we've got the rats all wrong. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Maybe well, okay. So, so but apparently they didn't think enough of it of the concept to to call it that. They called it what was it? Is it Luigi's? Oh, Pasquale. Oh, Pas- and that's because Pasquale is one of the members of the old animatronic house band. <laughs> I love that because they. For those people who have not been to to Chuck E. Cheese, whether you haven't you know been to a kids party or got roped into into attending one from somebody else's kid they do have a, a, a an animatronic band and <laughs> we're talking about a lot of animatronics that i did not plan on this but yes they do and periodically they'll say you know the the show's going to start in five minutes and all the little kids kind of gather around they they plug them in or put a quarter in or whatever makes these things kind of jerk and move around and they play some music and they do it so so pasquale was actually was he like the bassist or was he the drummer what role did he play in the band Oh, good question. I think that Jasper T. Jowles was the drummer. This is all off the off the cuff. I'm trying to remember my my trivia because actually in um, October or November they announced that they are retiring the house band. So they have uh, the band has broken up and they're they're they were kind of in the process of getting all of those uninstalled from all the Chuck E. Cheese locations. No, was it because uh, there's, did anyone, would one fall on a kid? Was there a liability issue? Like, <laughs> like, cause Jasper T. Giles, it's nice to see them all because you know what, Chucky, and if you've seen any of those specials behind the, behind the pizza or, or any of those kind of tell all books is that the guys felt, you know, because Jasper probably wrote most of the hits that Chucky got all the credit and, and they didn't feel that they were really getting their fair share of, uh, of the love when it came to, to what it is they were doing. That's right. And, uh, and, and now they'll never get their due credit because now they're probably all sitting in a warehouse somewhere. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the reason that they disassembled them was not even so interesting as one of them falling on a kid. It was that they wanted to promote uh, more like movement concepts. So instead of the kids sitting and watching animatronics, they could get up and dance or, you know, lots of activity flooring. Um, so they, they got rid of the house band. But of course, all the adults who are taking the kids to Chuck E. Cheese probably just wanted to see the animatronics again. <laughs> right. Well, so now we're looking toward moving towards more of a, like a Chucky led Zumba class where they, can go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, there's nothing better than taking a walk after some pizza and some other things. So for, for when it comes to Pasquale's and it seems like that, like, how did they arrive? Was this a focus group? Did they decide or was it one of the names that wasn't already obligated to someone else's, uh, you know, property or, or food, food items? Like, how did they decide on that? Do you know? I don't, but I know that the reason that it was kind of discovered, you know, they weren't advertising that it was a Chuck E. Cheese restaurant concept right away. Yeah. They were kind of existed on Uber Eats and DoorDash and these services. And a lot of people were thinking, hey, this says it's in my neighborhood, but I don't remember there being a Pasquale's. And then people put it together that it was the name of the chef. So it's almost like they were trying to send us a message, and it was a very clever, veiled way to do it. So they're they're keeping it in the brand family in this really funny, subtle way that's like an Easter egg for the true fans. (laughs) Well, I think it's also smart, too, because I think you're a realist if you understand that. Realize that people come to Chuck E. Cheese, but it isn't probably for the 
great food. You know, not that the food isn't okay. I mean, it is what it is. It's pizza, right? But but that that may not be like the thing you put out front, like from the people who brought you, you know, this cheese pizza. Here comes, you know, some wings, right, or or whatever it is that that they're going to sell. When you, when you mention Maggiano's and the kitchens that they have, and and they've got a lot, you know, a, a better. I think, you know, repertoire and reputation when it comes to, you know, the kind of food that they put out. How What are they going to use their kitchens for? Uh, and, and as far as one of these pop-up things, was it a different concept? Yeah, so I don't know if it's like a one-to-one, like Maggiano's Kitchens will do this and Chili's will do that. But before all of this, they were thinking of launching um, a chicken wing concept, as they are now doing, and then also a, quote, Sort of a Mexican concept was the way that the CEO of this parent company put it. Um, And that makes sense, too, when you think about it, because with Mexican foods, as we think of probably the Americanized Mexican food we're used to eating at, like Taco Bell, it's a lot of combining uh, a few similar ingredients across a lot of different dishes, and that that cuts down on space, that cuts down on um, bulk ordering and things like that. So Mexican and wings... You can kind of see their thinking on that. It's it's a popular cuisine, and some of the best Mexican food is right here in Chicago. I think any cuisine, you can spin the globe and put your finger down. You can get it at an elevated level here in Chicago. The idea that to call it sort of Mexican, it's, it seems kind of noncommittal. It's because it's like, well, it's sort of like, you know, was was that really? So it's going to have a limited me- menu. What is it? Maybe like quesadillas and, and, and tacos and, and maybe some kind of a... Uh, taco salad or something is it going to be like that or is it just um i'm I'm just wondering was was that really part of it is that what they was that the way that they sort of described it that you know this is how you'll describe it when you get there it's going to be sort of mexican yeah i i think i think that it speaks to how they were kind of batting around the idea in like a half-baked form and then the pandemic kind of called their bluff and made them speed up these concepts because the mexican one was going to launch first with the chicken wing one down the down the road, but then that one ended up coming first, probably because it's a more fully formed idea and didn't need as much tinkering. So maybe they'll they'll come up with the Mexican concept soon after, but they're probably going to wait and see how this chicken wing thing goes first. If people people really have a craving for wings that bad, or mostly wings, right, with a little bit of Oreos in there. I wanted to get your thoughts on this, and this is a concept that's that's happened. You know, there are restaurants that do you know chicken nuggets, you know McDonald's you know, created, or I think they sort of created or paved the way for sort of international acceptance for the nuggets and the dipping and all that kind of stuff. And now you're seeing places. And when you think about chicken wings, they're easy. You can't screw them up. When it comes to nuggets, it's almost like another level of easy and you can't screw it up. And of course you can kind of change the taste with just one dip, uh, depending on how you do it. So what are your thoughts on that? I know that there's different I think there's there's a couple franchise I don't say franchises but different uh, properties out there different brands of restaurant that are doing it. I know that that uh, guy from Diners Drivers and Dives has a um, a chicken nugget kind of concept that's out there. Is that something that's that's popular? I know people like like I know the kids do. I know you're making me hungry just thinking about it, and they should they should plant those in college towns across the globe because you know what's easier when you just want a nice filling snack. Like you said, just put a bunch of dipping sauces in front of it and suddenly it's a concept. <laughs> yep. We're going to take a break and we come back. We're going to continue our conversation uh, with Marnie, your editor in chief of the takeout.com. We're going to talk about the delivery services 
that are out there now, and this they become even more important um, during this time. But it hasn't been great. I guess it's been okay for the people getting the deliveries, not so great for the restaurants themselves. We'll talk a little bit about that, and maybe some of the new things that are on the horizon as well. So keep it here. It's Dane on seven twenty WGN. Seven twenty, WGN. It is Dane here with you until four a.m. Continuing our conversation uh, with the editor in chief of the Takeout.com, the one and only Marnie. Sure, Marnie. It is great to have you back, and and you guys shine kind of a tongue-in-cheek uh, perspective on some of the food issues that are out there, and it's certainly fun to kind of be able to talk about some of those and add a little bit of levity into some of them. The the delivery side is, and this is one of the more serious ones. I know that we've had you know people come on with various shows, and and I've had some of the people in the in the food industry contact me related to this, and it's it's the kind of thing where at the surface you almost feel as though you're supporting your local restaurants. It's important to do, but the way that that business happens, especially when that is like the bulk of the business, based on whether it's restrictions or closures or just the way that things are going with the pandemic. Um, it can be misleading, right? And so talk a little bit about that for people that may not be up to speed with it. So some of the, whether it's DoorDash or Grubhub, it's, um, it's, it's not as easy as you think there's an extra fee that you would pay that would go over and above those dishes that you know and love, but there's more to it than that. There really is. And it's, it's a very complicated issue that we've tried to cover in a number of different news articles. But suffice it to say, when you place, when you Google a restaurant, um, or even go to your Grubhub app and say, I wonder what's good around here. Um, Grubhub is listing restaurants, first of all, that might not even want to be listed on the service. That's something that a San Francisco restaurant owner discovered that was happening when she started getting orders from angry customers who hadn't gotten their deliveries. And she said, well, we don't do delivery. And it's because the service was listing her restaurant without her consent. Um, so that's that's one problem is that not all the restaurants want to be on there. And then those that do, they they obviously benefit from the added exposure of being on these services and, you know, getting to the top of Google results and everything. So that's, you'd think that would be good, but they have to pay such a high fee for being listed on those services that any interaction the restaurant has through those DoorDash, Grubhub, is a fee in itself. And in fact, many governments in, in cities across America have been trying to set limits on the types of fees that can be charged. Um, in some cases, these delivery apps were taking out chunks of money for phone calls set up through the app to the restaurant that didn't even result in an order. So the restaurants are paying to use these services even when they're not getting the business on the other end of it. And some restaurants have been so squeezed by this mm. that they have been forced to close. So it's it's tough because the initial thought is, well, if they didn't want to use these services, just don't use them. But, you know, in a in a business where everyone's kind of competing for the same exposure, it can be really tough. And it's kind of a a no-win situation. It's it, well, and when you look at some of the kind of tactics that have been employed, it's 
it's kind of surprising. You think, okay, well, th- you're helping if we're a restaurant, if they don't offer delivery, this is a service that will do that. And just in this day and age, we have so many things being delivered to our door. This is another way where someone, technology and the gig economy has stepped in to kind of help us get what it is that we need, right? And so that's the way that it looks when I found out that they're, the, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I had heard that that somehow they're creating sort of mirror websites to, I don't want to say deceive, but like to give the impression that they themselves, or whether it's, you know, a letter off here and there, that they themselves are the restaurant. And so people are calling what they feel like is the restaurant. They're not either being connected by the restaurant to Grubhub or going through Grubhub themselves. And and so there's just kind of this confusion. You 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 touched on it a little bit as well, where people feel like they're ordering from the restaurant, and I think that that's purposeful. It's absolutely purposeful, and they do that not only with websites but with restaurant phone numbers. Um, a lot of third-party services can sort of game the system and make sure that their phone number for a given restaurant is the one that shows up when you Google it and not the real restaurant number. So even if you say okay, support your restaurant by calling directly. Sometimes you might not be put through to the real restaurant. You know, it's, it just requires some due diligence. If you want to interact directly with the restaurant, you know, find their information on their social media channels or double-check and make sure that that restaurant website doesn't look like it came out of a box and looks uniform to a lot of other restaurant websites across the city. You know, it's it's... An obnoxious, like, extra step that you have to take as the consumer, but it will make a difference in the long run, and it will make sure that so much more money goes to the restaurant itself. Well, and I think that's the the higher purpose that people are trying to do is they're trying to, they understand these are challenging times, and a big portion of what that business would normally do is not available to them at this point, and so they're supporting it by going there. For your readers and some of the feedback that you've got, when the general public was made aware, because that's it's one thing to have there's a little bit of confusion and or someone calls and they think it's this, but to create websites or numbers for the express purpose of confusing people into calling them first is I mean it's it's really sneaky. What has been the feedback from from takeout readers where they're saying like they didn't know this was going on? It's got to be a surprise. It is, and I think that there is a lot of defensiveness because. People certainly don't want to hear that they've been doing the wrong thing, that that we've been doing the wrong thing to help restaurants or that, you know, you're, you're hurting your favorite restaurants. Nobody wants to tell our, you know, the readers don't want to hear that, and we don't want to say that. It's more like you should, as the consumer, have the option to support the restaurant directly if that's what you'd like to do. And these services are kind of obscuring the truth in certain ways that that they they defend by saying that they have the right to do it. It's in their contract that they sign with the restaurants. But the fact is, as consumers, we just have to be, you know, keep our eyes wide open as we support restaurants and make sure that we're doing it the way that we intend to do it. And you mentioned, too, that sometimes the way that the the reimbursements for the food is is sort of a lagging indicator and it can fees here and charges there. And so what I had heard, too, was that when it comes up, whatever the amount is that the the restaurant was under the impression they were going to be getting, it's oftentimes, you know, much less and they really don't have there's and it's afterwards like like far after the fact, days after the fact, and they're just trying to recoup expenses and there really isn't much recourse. That's right. They can end up making a few dollars 
on your entire meal that you've ordered. And, you know, with, with restaurants, margins are already so thin. The profit margins in re- the restaurant industry are, are just like some of the thinnest out there. And so to find other ways that it's being skimmed off is, uh, you know, it makes the difference between staying open and closing. Jeez. So that's it. You've just got to do your due diligence as a consumer. If uh, if the phone rings and Jasper T. Giles isn't the one that's answering the phone, you know that it isn't. A, you know, it's a, you gotta just, Where are these wings coming from? Right, you gotta you gotta quiz these guys. Okay. So one of the things that we're doing, especially in the pandemic, you were you know on lockdown, we're quarantined, we're eating a lot of ice cream, and I know that that's the case. And you guys recently had a story. Ben and Jerry continues to improve our lives with an ice cream storage hack. It is important because there are times when you deciding oh my i can't wait to get in there and get some ice cream you got freezer burner you got some other things what is or are the essentials for the care and feeding of your of your ice cream absolutely glad you asked uh so freezer burns no fun it makes the ice cream less flavorful it's you know crunchy ice all over it so ben and jerry's website actually has some fun tips on how to store it so that it doesn't do that And one of the tips is to store the pint, make sure the lid's tight, and then store the pint upside down in the freezer. And the reason for that is if it has melted a little bit by being out on your counter for any amount of time, when you store it upside down, the melt will go off of the larger portion of ice cream and sit on the lid. And that way, if it freezer burns, only the part on the lid is forming the water and the ice crystals. And then that keeps most of your pint totally pristine, which I thought was brilliant. And I'd never thought of that before. Mm, That's, I wonder, I wonder who came up with that. So were people kind of getting to them? Is there one brand that you've heard? We've got maybe a minute or so left that maybe was under the impression you've got sort of a gourmet situation with, uh, with Ben and Jerry's. It's expensive ice cream. You don't want to throw it away. Was, was it people had come to them with these questions? What can we do? And they, and they did some R and D and worked it out. Or was this just something common knowledge? Well, it certainly wasn't common knowledge to me. And to, a lot of our readers have also expressed surprise, but most readers kind of came back with some variation of, wait, you have leftover ice cream after you take <laughs> out the pint. Right. That's it. There's a, the whole thing is just eat it all right at one sitting and you have no problem with freezer burn. It's all right there in your, in your belly. So Marnie sure let the listeners know, of course, was talking with her editor in chief, the takeout.com uh, in a minute or so that we have left, let the listeners know for those uninitiated and not part of the tribe, how they can follow what it is you're doing on the adventure side and all the, uh, the writings and, and all the cool stuff you guys are doing at the takeout. Yeah, absolutely. We put up news stories every day, about a dozen news stories a day on thetakeout.com. And we just love to talk about how food is delicious. We talk about fast food. We publish recipes. We do historical deep dives on certain topics. Um, And we're also on Twitter at The Takeout and Instagram at The Takeout site. Um, So you can see lots of pictures of what we're doing and making, and we want to see your pictures too. Lots of stuff there. Always lots of food, all sorts of things all through the entire scope of the food world and always keeping it fun. Marnie, thanks so much for what you're doing and your entire team over there at the takeout.com. And thanks for jumping on the show tonight. Thanks so much. It was so much fun. All right. Well, let's, um, we're going to take a break. And when we come back uh, after the news, we're going to have that opportunity. We're going to be talking. I think we're going to talk with Blockbuster Blake Stubbs when, of course, you know him. He has his hand on the pulse of the entertainment world in a bunch of different ways. And, uh, and even though we're not talking, you know, movies, the business of entertainment moves on. And there is a, a court case that has happened that is, um, 
recent that has changed the way that we're going to be able to enjoy movies, the way that we're going to be able to enjoy um, entertainment, the way on the streaming services, some of the access we're going to have to some of those things is going to be changed in a bunch of different ways. You know, we have talked about uh, the theater industry is just one of those that has been super hard hit by the pandemic because, you know, what is it? It's really just a bunch of people all sitting next to each other, eating food in the same room, breathing that same year uh, for the purpose of entertainment. But it is such a big part of Americana. Um, that is the kind of thing that I know that, that I miss. And I know that there's been a lot of releases that, um, that haven't come out. And so this new lawsuit that is, um, that wasn't a lawsuit, but it was a court case that was resolved is going to change the way that these, uh, whether it's the studios and whether it's the theaters, the way that they work together, there's so much changing on the entertainment side and the way that we consume uh, a lot of that entertainment anyway. And then you add in the pandemic and the fact that a lot of the normal business models aren't working uh, like they would normally work. It's going to be interesting to see. You're going to keep it here, too, because later on in the program, we're going to be talking road trips and RVs and some great ways to get in on that. Mario Andretti is going to join us as well, and we're going to get a live call on eco tourism and, and ways to kind of uh, get out there with, you know, all the animals, all the big ones, you know, lions and, and tigers and and everything with um, Kate Webster. She's going to be calling us from Australia. So keep it here. Time for the news. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, and on the line with us now, when the the blockbuster Blake Bat Signal is out from the uh, the well recognized entertainment capital of the Midwest, Peoria, Illinois. It is blockbuster Blake Stubbs. Whenever there is stirrings uh, in the force of film, Blake is there. Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dane. Yeah, this is uh, things are getting a little exciting. We've, we've been under quarantine, so you know, for a long time now, months on end. People wondering when things are going to start getting a little bit back to normal. The movie theater industry is looking a little bit different, and we kind of knew that was going to happen. Things uh, are shifting. We we talked, you know, because we try to brainstorm. You know, we're out here trying to help people do a public service and try to save the film industry. And it looks as though the yeah. the studios are trying to save maybe themselves or or maybe kind of change the industry in a way that benefits them. And we've talked about silver linings that are going on during the pandemic and some of the positive things that are coming out of all that negative. And if you're a studio and you got this court ruling, this would be something that you would see as a tremendous opportunity, not only on the dollars and cents size, but to control your destiny in a film world and a way that people are consuming it like, you know, more different than I think any time in the industry. Right. So essentially what happened was, was that the, uh, a federal judge ruled uh, in favor of being allowed to own movie theaters again, which has not been allowed since 1949. That's 71 years. That's a long time. And the reason that this happened was because during the quote-unquote golden age of Hollywood, um, studios typically owned theaters where they would show their films. It doesn't sound like it's that out of character. I mean, back then... You know, movies were being made uh, much more often and released much more often every week. They were also coupled with whole experiences like newsreels, cartoons, or serials playing before them. Going to the movies was a real, like, day experience as opposed to, I'm just going to go see this movie at 7.30 and then go home afterwards. So by 1949, 
things have become really problematic for uh, the smaller entrepreneur-owned theaters, uh, the mom-and-pops, you know, the theaters that were locally owned and operated, because studios essentially said, look, if you want to see our stuff, you have to come to our theater. So those mom-and-pop theaters put themselves in positions where, in order to stay open, they had to play sort of older films they could get access to and not really be on the forefront of new releases. Now, they would get new releases from time to time, but the point is, is that that part of the movie theater model was dying out. So, on a federal level, they intervened, and they basically said, well, like movie studios, you can't monopolize the, the industry. Like, you can produce these things, you can um, work out a deal with exhibitors, but you cannot just simply, you know, own and operate and only play your stuff. So this really branched out and helped the entertainment industry grow in a lot of ways. Now, obviously, chains have come and gone over, over many decades. Um, we've also, you know, noticed that in this time of quarantine, there's a lot of questions about what chains will still remain open, what multiplexes are going to be closing. Um, you know, they, I, 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 while this is a monumental decision to let studios own again, uh, it, it raises a lot of questions about how things are going to go. I mean, are you going to have a Disney-owned theater in your town sometime mm-hmm. soon in the next few years? 100%. Disney content. Yeah. Probably, yeah, probably. Or a Netflix-owned theater that only plays Netflix content. The idea that that can exist um, it could be troublesome for places that are trying to be locally owned and operated theaters because they may not get access to any of these films. The other thing about this decision is that it changes the window in which films can be played in theaters but then released to other platforms. For example, let's say a studio puts out a major blockbuster film like um, an example would be Black Widow. Right, That's one of the tabled movies that we're going to get released in the near future. Just as a hypothetical, let's say something like Black Widow is going to be released. It could maybe run three weeks in theaters and have the big screen experience, and people go see it, and it makes a good amount of money. But then all of a sudden, they put it to Disney puts it to Disney on a premium rental fee for like $15 to watch it at home, and you don't have to go out to the theater to see it. Now, if you've got a family at home that wants to watch it, 15 bucks doesn't sound that bad. They're just going to find new ways to generate funds off of, um, you know, having it in their own theaters and then transferring it to platforms that they want to. To have yeah. them go, well, to have them control those those time periods, those grace periods, those periods of exclusivity that were in there and kind of mandated mm-hmm. by law is something that is absolutely huge. You and I, the last time we talked, is like, what were some of the ways that they could. Uh, you know, in a time when people weren't getting out to the movie theaters because of fear over the pandemic or cautionary tales and all that. And it's like, what, what is a way for them to have and kind of bridge that gap from the, you know, the at-home viewing experience, which is to- totally different. And, and we've all agreed less valuable than the in-theater experience. And now, of course, in a post-pandemic time to have the ability, because now they can make a case for it saying like, hey, we have no place to show our movies. So we need to be able to control our environments and control the way that we release things but we know that this isn't going to last at least we hope forever but to have something that sits in place the last ruling was 70 plus years and and you know just the way that it's changed so much people's you know access to the content and the way that they consume it it's going to be absolutely it's just going to be so huge and i cannot see wow it's like blake how is this going to how is it going to shake out? Because you have, well, let, wait, let's take a quick break and um, 
So we'll take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more with Blake Stubbs about how this is going to shake out, what he sees as the possible scenarios. Maybe it's not one. Maybe it's three or four different scenarios. Maybe it's, you know, there's there's Disney, just like there's a Disney cruise line. Maybe there's Disney theaters that offer, you know, you've got the, the mascots and all that kind of stuff, and maybe there's other theaters that sort of have a variety of things that they have. But to have the studios being able to have not only a seat at that table but dictate it, is going to be crazy. So when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Blockbuster Blake Stubbs. Keep it here at Stain on 720 WGN. I was a little too tall, could have used a few pounds. Tight pants, points, hollering down. She was a blackhead beauty with big dogs. 720 WGN, it is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago Skyline Studio, continuing our conversation with Blake Stubbs at a day that um, at least people that are in and around the film industry, certainly those working in the theater world, in the studio world, when you say blockbuster, this decision is really going to change a lot of the things. I'm not sure if the, yeah, but when some of these things happen, businesses are either impacted in a positive or negative way. But Blake, consumer wise, is this a win win? for for the consumers where we're going to be able to have the theater experience but also maybe have quicker access in the ways we want to the movies we love well it's a very it's a very layered answer the, the consumers will probably see a lot of positive impacts on this if theaters are going to be owned operated and in the near future built by studios they get to dictate in a, in a different way compared to how their partnership with different chains has worked over the many years about what that experience is going to be like you know, how many people are going to be in the auditorium? How many auditoriums will there be? Will they build smaller auditoriums and have more of them, but have them be socially distanced for health concerns? Will they build bigger ones and just have more spaced out seating that's more comfortable? The consumer, you know, you, me, and your family, Jane, might have a better experience in the long run on this. But behind the scenes, things are going to change for the industry in terms of how exhibitors and studios interact with one another. And I guess it could raise a question of, if this decision still stands and all of this money is invested and the studios own 100% of it, they don't have to split the gates with uh, the studios. Because as I've said with you many times, the studios uh, make most of their money off ticket sales. And the exhibitors get some of that, but not all of it. And I guess traditionally it's about 50-50. So the exhibitors really make their money off of the concessions and the experience that you buy into when you come to see a film at their cinema. This could change things in a big way where certain chains no longer exist in a few years. Uh, this could change where studios are building more premium viewing experiences that audiences want to indulge. Um, meaning I'm willing to pay $3 more a ticket if I get to sit in a recliner that reclines back and it's a, you know, fully climate controlled theater and there's food to be had that's, you know, of a better menu than say the traditional candy popcorn soda variety. Um, there, there's a lot of questions about where it could go. Now, in terms of where it's going to go in the immediate, this is a really vulnerable time, I think, for chain to have this decision be levied because a lot of them have been shut down for months. Several of them are closing many different uh, uh, locations throughout the country, uh, downsizing. Some were expected to completely close. Some have found ways to stay open at least for one more calendar year and see if they can make it through this pandemic and get back to normal. Um, but the fact that studios now will have the option to own their own venues 
I'm curious to see how far wide and reaching that goes. If this is something that studios want to do simply to, you know, build theaters out in like New York, Los Angeles, and then make sure they have set screenings for their Oscar contenders, and it's on a smaller scale, totally makes sense. But if they start breaking partnerships with what films are going to show in multiplexes, you're going to see a major shift in what ha- in the industry as a whole. But you, as a consumer, you might still just see positive ends to this yeah. directly to yourself. Well, now, Blake, so so you know that it's going to be there's going to be some people are going to have to come to the table and come to terms with things, and there's going to be some chains that are going to try to broker some deal. When it comes to Disney, the, you know, I think the only thing stopping them from having their own experiences and own opportunities to kind of extend that brand, promote all of those other properties and all of those other disney type experience whether it's you know cruises or theme parks or dolls or toys or whatever inside the theater imagine having a disney store in the theater well that's going to happen so for disney man i see them saying like we have so many great opportunities to do things for others maybe cost the fact that a lot of that that movie watching infrastructure is already built and at a high level um at some different chains is there but do you know offhand like industry insider stuff we know they've all had to work together as sort of this partnership to to highlight promote and provide that venue for people to watch it but are those relationships are they good or have they always been contentious enforced with sort of obligated working arrangements well i think they've been contentious mostly as of late uh, in the public eye but there have always been issues throughout you know many decades especially for the chains that have existed for long uh you know a big thing i mentioned earlier about how the independent owned theaters um you know the mom and pops the the one and two screen deals that were local movie palace type um you know structures they really got wiped out in the 1918-1919 pandemic. So 101 years ago, a pandemic really put them in a bad spot. And the ones that survived, uh, in some cases, like the Virginia Theater, for example, in Champaign, Illinois, that's a landmark. That's a protected building, uh, and it shows films. It's a great experience. Roger Ebert's Film Festival takes place there every year. Um, except for this year, obviously, because everything was canceled. But it's, you know, things like that are going to become even more rare, I think, locally, because not all those types of buildings, if they still stand, are protected. Um, I feel like this 71 year, uh, you know, protection of sorts for the, the chains or the, uh, exhibitors, uh, is the best way to describe them, uh, was a good thing just because it kept a sense of fair play amongst uh, the studio who could have easily just put them in their own venues, but they weren't allowed to. But now this in the immediate, you know, your brain can run, run wild with how badly this, this could turn for the chains over the next few years. But I think in the immediate, we're just, you know, people are looking forward to maybe going back and seeing the movies here soon and they're going to get their chance. How this shakes out is going to be a little more of a, I think a one to three year, um, you know, in three years, you and I should talk again and see what's happened, because I think that's when we're really going to see uh, the major changes. But this puts so much power in the hands of the studios. Yeah. And, you know, you hope that if the studios are going to put the chains out of business in a few years, if that is to happen, that whatever the experience is, the consumer remains happy. That's the only thing they're going to care about. They're going to make sure it's a premium experience. They're going to try to make sure that it's something that you want to go do. But then here's the other thing, Dane. Like I said earlier, if the window, because of exclusivity, used to be 90 days, meaning if your movie debuted today, it would need 90 days in theaters before you can just take it and home release it or put it on a video-on-demand system. 
Uh, now it, that window has closed for, I believe, like 17 days, which is, which is huge compared to what it used to be. Yes. So if the studios don't really feel they're getting their money's worth out of, you know, the fact that they paid, say, $100 million to make the movie, then they got to build whole other marketing budgets to put the movie in theaters. But studios feel that then they have to pay again when it comes out of theaters to advertise that the film is now either on demand or um, released for home consumption. So you hear our home ownership, I should say. Um, so this has a lot wow. of the changes in this are, are massive. Yes. It's just a question of how are they going to shake out? And it, I think it's too early to tell because here's the thing. This could also maybe get overturned at some point if the, if the chain spite it. The problem is, I think this is a very vulnerable time for them. Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, no, they are totally. But but for some of those movies, now, do you know offhand? So let's say like an Ian Ziering. Uh, comes out with Sharknado 11 and it's we all know it's terrible yeah. but you know we'll watch it on TV but no one would ever like show up at the movie theater for it does it still have does it have to like let's say and, and just pardon my ignorance does it does it have to file for like a direct to you know Netflix or direct to TV kind of scenario or does it have to still have that window where you know there could be some hype where you could promote it like hey it's crazy it's Sharknado you know Al Roker's in it Right. Do they still have to wait that 90 days at least, or is this going to be a benefit for movies like that? They can just have this streamlined kind of combo marketing promotional budget to see what happens. Cause some of these movies catch fire, right. And people will go see them, but right. always have that ability to kind of pull the trigger and get it right into, uh, into the streaming services or Redbox or whatever. Well, in the case of something like, and I'll stick with the Sharknado example that was produced. It's my understanding by a television channel. So that was a made-for-TV movie that was made for television. Now, if they strike a deal where they want to air it in, I don't know, a New York, L.A. theater, just on the lark that they could, they want to, they want to do a fun campaign for award season. That they can do that. That's totally okay. Now, if you know we're five years down the road and all movie theaters are owned by studios, which means, by the way, that at this point the Sharknado film would have a hard time getting into anything other than an independent theater, which, by the way, you might not have near you. That's important to note. Not everyone in the, in the city of Chicago, you have things like the Music Box Theater, which provides a great experience if you're looking for something outside of the Megaplex uh, experience itself. Now, in the case of something like a Sharknado going to any other type of, of uh theater at that point it wouldn't really be possible because i you know the studios didn't produce it they're not going to want to show it so if they have a hand in producing it then yes they'll probably show it it'll have a short run and then it'll go to whatever um on demand or uh television channel was expected to show it but honestly that's probably not going to be the case in many uh instances um, just because those films are budgeted you know a certain way they're meant to be broadcast a certain way to the public be it you know, at home on television on a live premiere, um, which, you know, those types of events feel so few and far between these days because we want to see things, you know, on demand or they just get dropped on Netflix or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I, I could see, I could see films like that benefiting though, because if people are so used to watching things at home and that's where it's always going to be, then it's just going to end up in their catalog of stuff they watch anyway. I wanted to, the, I think the thing where I'm seeing the possibilities, and I see this you know, from the consumer side as possibilities, but I also see it as being a real restriction in the amount of opportunities and places that people can see it, is when you get to some of those those Marvel films that are so anticipated, you know, for 
you know, right. Endgame, where it was, you know, I think I was at the theater at like 7 a.m. because that was when it was open, and there were sold-out theaters the entire day. It was one of the biggest movies of all time. If a company that's as, as enterprising and creative and just, like, expansive as Disney could, could imagine what a premiere like that would be. From the consumer side, I'm seeing, you know, they could have some of the characters there on site. They could have it only at those theaters. If they could have that where people had to do that, that is like a destination-type movie. Um, they could certainly, I think, dictate and get what they want. And there's, I think, from the you know bottom line, there's so many dollars there. They would make a lot of money. And I just, I just see that as... You know, as one of the end is one of the end games. We're going to talk about that when we come back with Blockbuster Blake Subs. We'll have at least one more segment with him, not only about kind of what it could look like in in sort of the best case scenario on the entertainment side and things that could be built in if the studios had that bigger role in presenting it. And then also we're going to get AMC, one of the biggest uh, theater chains out there, has decided to do something. I don't know. It's not a preemptive strike, but it's certainly it's a counterpunch. And, and I think it's impactful as well. So we're going to talk about what they're doing. Blockbuster Blake Stubbs is with us. Keep it here. It's Dane on 720 WGN. Seven twenty, WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio. On the line with us, continuing our conversation with uh, blockbuster Blake Stubbs as the as the big, a couple different things, big announcements in the film world. Uh, the the sort of the foundational elements of how things happen on the production side and the distribution side and the exhibition side have changed. And so, Blake, when we were last talking to you, we were thinking like in your in your world, and you imagine like what would a a a post this decision Disney completely owned and controlled um, premiere of let's say a Marvel movie what could that be well it could be as as convenient as I was talking about the experience of being at the actual theater that they own if it's near you or near ish to you um, you could have to be traveling to go see movies that you really want to go see in theaters so before it gets its home release, which, you know, at that point, if the theaters own it, they can decide when it gets released at home. If you want to go, say, you know, and see something, well, what if this, the only Disney theater in Illinois is in Chicago? I have to drive three hours north from Peoria to see a Disney premiere. Like the premiere, you know, have the theatrical experience. But then let's say down here in Peoria, we have a universal theater, right? And you don't have that up in Chicago. So there's some interesting, and again, I don't know that it'll go this far. But I'm just saying that hypothetically, this is possible. So you could see uh, almost like people uh, cheering for theaters as they do sports teams. They have a certain sense of loyalty to you know their community and their type of theater. And I'm sure that if the studios were to build a theater in my community, they would try to embrace the community and make sure that people come and see things at it. But this model uh, raises so many questions, and for every answer, it's like a hydra. Every, every time you answer one question, a new question pops up. And I think that, you know, for now, I don't see things drastically changing in the immediate. What I do see happening, though, is things like um, 
like my understanding is most Disney films premiere at the El Capitan in Los Angeles, right there on Hollywood Boulevard, which is across from uh, the Chinese theater. So if you were going to go see something, but it's my understanding, I, I believe Disney does not own the theater. They just have a long-standing agreement that that's where they do their premieres. Um, or they've done many premieres there. Okay, I, I know that for a fact. So those types of experiences aren't just going to be a singular thing or a once-in-a-while thing while they also show other movies. It's going to be a premiere event at certain theaters, and then all that shows is a catalog from that studio. And there may, you know, there may end up being agreements struck where, you know, Disney uh, builds a 24 uh, cinema theater and eight of those cinemas go strictly to Disney films and then two go to Universal and two can go to Netflix. So the Netflix now jumps into the theater game as opposed to just being at home. You can see all kinds of wild card things occur over the next few years, thanks to the change in this, um, this ruling. So I, it, it, it's a lot of, I don't want to sit here and say I don't know, because I clearly know and have an idea of what could happen, but that's all it is at the moment. It's what could happen. And like, right now, they've kind of been given a, a blank check of sorts to create a new version of, of the theatrical experience. Yeah. For well, I, I think they'll see it as, as an opportunity, and you have so many different things that they could build into it. I think from the experience side, Disney does a lot of things really well. We mentioned sort of the Disney store and all of those you know, kind of the toys and the swag and things that could be available and for sale. And so just as you come off of a ride, the Frozen ride at um, at Disney World and you end up in a gift shop, I think that they're going to funnel right. people out of the theater into the gift shop to where people are, you know, with little people, you know, with needs are going to be like, I need that. I need that. I mean, it sort of makes sense. And then also, too, is on the Disney side, you know, they've got a lot of iconic foods and different things that are kind of built into that experience. And, and that's a big part of it. Um, as well. And again, and then uh, as you kind of touched on the inconvenience side of it, this is a company that has no problem making you wait 180 minutes or longer to get on a ride. And so maybe right. we're going to have like fast pass movie seating and, and some other things. So this is like the future sort of Jetsons. We're fast forwarding it, but AMC has decided to preemptive, uh, you know, strike it at kind of breaking the ice, moving things forward in as far as getting people back into the into the theaters. The last time that you and I talked, we we're like, well, what could they do? People are going to be reluctant to get into the theaters and go into it for all those other reasons. And then you kind of figure what the market will bear and things will sell when they get to a point where people are like, OK, the risk reward is there. And so I had heard, I think it was just today that AMC is going to be opening. It might be next week. They're going to be starting to open theaters, you know, adhering to whatever protocols are in the area that they are. You know, I think they're multi-state for sure. Right. Um, and the ticket price. And we've mentioned they make a percentage of the ticket price, but the real profitability is in the concessions and a lot of those elements that are built into the movie watching experience is 15 cents 15 cents and still something right so you're going to get something yep. uh, and maybe that's the 15 cents maybe they split seven cents with the uh <laughs> with the with the uh the studio but i don't know what does that mean to you like because when i first heard it i'm like i don't know maybe i could go 15 cents that's crazy well, to me, this is both the exhibitor and the studios agreeing that to kickstart people going back to the movies for one day only, they will, and this is the um, a little marketing phrase they're using, it's movies in 2020 at 1920 prices. They're literally going to sell you a ticket on the first day on August 20th for 15 cents. So if you want to go see a movie, go see a movie. Now, this should also be um, qualified or you know, some qualifiers to this. 
they will be practicing, you know, social distancing with reduced capacity in theaters. Um, you know, the mask policies that they've outlined over the last few weeks um, have, is definitely going to be in place. They're not changing, you know, the overall situation. But everything that's going to be showing in that theater, in the theaters, which, by the way, it'll be 100, 100 cinemas of the about 600 that they own, so about a sixth of their overall cinemas. And it's my understanding that uh, AMC River East there in Chicago will be participating in this. Um, don't quote, you know, I, I hope I don't make anybody mad at AMC, but it's my understanding they will be. 15 cents a ticket for that first day. And then after that, um, the uh, they'll be showing catalog films such as, you know, and there's these are things that have, have been showing uh, in some places. They've been showing catalog movies uh, for the small, some theaters that have been open. They're going to show things like Ghostbusters, Black Panther, Back to the Future, Grease, etc. Um, after this promotion, that one-day promotion, those films are going to go to $5 per ticket until there's a more, you know, diverse catalog of new films over the next coming weeks uh, that'll be released. And, you know, kicking off, uh, you know, there's some big things that are going to be released. Uh, new Mutants, Disney's New Mutants, which has been delayed for quite a long time, is going to be debuting on the 28th. Uh, Christopher Nolan's Tenet is now going to be dropping here in the States in select cities and theaters on September 3rd. Wow. Uh, like uh, Russell Crowe's new thriller, Unhinged, is going to be, I believe, opening on the 20th, on that opening day, as well as uh, Armando Iannucci's new film, uh, Personal History of David Copperfield, uh, which will also be on the 20th. So they have some new stuff that's going to be dropping, uh, and they're going to be running this promotion. But if you want to go see something like Ghostbusters, cool. All the, all, all to, uh, power to you. Uh, just know that you will be following the social distancing guidelines. Um, I think this is aggressive marketing, uh, though, to, to the highest order. I, I think that it is a joint venture between both studio and AMC so that they're able to make sure that people you know, can come check it out without feeling like they're taking a financial hit. And if they feel safe, that word of mouth, which I think you and I recently talked about, word of mouth is what's going to get people back in movie theaters. It's not going to be any real advertising. However, I think they kind of understand that, and they're offering this way to get people interested in coming back. So they've got these big the movies that have been on hold, and you've talked about them much anticipated. They're going to be coming in. They've They've basically got to that point where they're going to, they want to. They want to drop these. They want these to come out. They can't wait indefinitely. Yep. And so they're developing this this promotion that allows people to sort of dip their big toe in the water and see, hey, come on in. The water's fine. And then you're thinking word of mouth, where people will come out of it saying, I went the mo- to the movies and it was great. Kind of reacquainting yourself with all the things that you know and love about it, and then hopefully being able to have that testimonial of survival. Right? That I went. I saw right. a movie. I really enjoyed it. I remembered how much I enjoyed doing this and i lived and is that kind of really what they're looking to accomplish with this i think so and i mean they you know uh probably few people more excited than i am to go back to the movies now am i going to be participating in the first day i don't think so um i think i'm still a little hesitant personally but that's just me um it also depends on you know whether the amc theater here in my community is going to be doing this Uh, i might reevaluate because i do know people who work there so, I mean, you know, that's the other thing. You, you need to kind of feel this out for yourself. If you're not comfortable with it, that's okay. But this is a very aggressive and, you know, it, it's it's a tempting marketing proposition to say, hey, you know, in 2020, I went to the movies and I only paid 15 cents for my ticket. Um, now, it's my understanding also that this doesn't impact uh, the concession sales. So <laughs> concession sales will probably be normal prices and everything like that. But the experience of not having to pay, what, 10 to 
$15, depending on where you live, to get a movie ticket, uh, is, is, you know, that's an enticing offer, I think, for people who want to get out uh, this next weekend oh. and go see a movie. It sounds it sounds really nice. Let the listeners know we're, of course, talking with blockbuster Blake Stubbs from the well-recognized entertainment capital of the Midwest, Peoria, uh, Illinois. So as far as you know, and no one's holding you to it, 15 cents is for the, the 20th that is coming up in select theaters, maybe about 100. There is some, and of course, you, I'm sure you can go to that website for AMC and check that out. And then going forward, is is it going to be $5 for all? The, so is $5 the new price until further notice, or is this a select period of time as well? $5 is what they will be applying to the catalog films, so not necessarily the new releases. Now, they haven't really spoken about what prices will be on new releases after the 20th. It's just those older films that they're running to kind of fill the, the screens, so to speak, while they wait for new material to be coming in week after week. So I, that's my interpretation of, of the announcement that they made today. We'll see how it all shakes out. Wow, it's going to be fun, but I think we're going to get some people back in, and of course we'll hear, uh, maybe revisit this in a couple weeks or a few weeks or whatever, and when we see just kind of what impact, if any, that it's had, is this enough to get people in, you know, go in there and see, you know, I don't know, Shrek or, or uh, you know, Back to the Future or some of these other films that are great to see on a big screen. Is that going to be enough to kind of let people kind of rekindle their relationship with their own personal cinematic experience, even in the middle of the pandemic? He has his hand on the pulse of so many things, including the breaking news. He's breaking blockbuster Blake Stubbs. And uh, so, Blake, we'll let you get back to, to what you're doing. People want to continue the conversation social media wise. Where can they find you? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at Blake Stubbs, B-L-A-K-E-S-T-U-B-B-S. And I just want to throw one minor correction in because I wanted to be sure about this. Um, I mentioned the El Capitan Theater uh, there on, Hol- and I believe on Hollywood Boulevard. Disney does own that one theater, but it is one screen. And then there's, an, uh, I believe, an adjacent building that they own as well. That's where they host their exclusive premieres. So outside of not competing in the big chain multiplex world, um, you know, studios do not own these theaters. And that looks like it's about to change. I just wanted to throw that correction in there because I felt like it was important to make sure people knew the specifics of, Commitment. of the industry. Commitment to <laughs> so authenticity and accuracy. He is uh, he is the self-correcting blockbuster Blake Stubbs. And uh, thanks, Blake, for everything that you're doing. Thanks for jumping on the show tonight. It's been great. Thanks very much. And, hey, look, I hope we're all back at the movie theater, you know, seeing movies and enjoying them soon. I just think it's safely and that, you know, we're able to get back out there and feel like there's some sense of normality to it again. Uh, but, you know, we'll see how things go in the next few weeks. So looking, looking forward to catching up with you on that, though, Dane. Love the bumpers. 720 WGN. It is uh, Dane here with you. High atop Chicago in for Nick D. Until 4 a.m. Always great to talk with uh, blockbuster Blake Stubbs. And he understands the industry. And uh, and it's a, it's a thing that applies to all of us. We've all been in the movies and we've all kind of kind of experienced some of the new streaming systems or just some of the different ways that we're able to consume uh, entertainment, whether it's our favorite shows or whether it's uh, you know some of the movies and things are changing um so tom you used to work at a theater right and so you got a little bit of that insight behind the velvet rope right (laughs) well but into into the business model of it and what is it what is what is that like obviously you're in the entertainment business i'm doing the air quotes people think of it as uh an opportunity you know with the popcorn that people haven't cracked the code on that but outside of that 
is is that business fragile? Is it at risk at this point, at least the way that we've kind of known it? Well, I think it's been at risk for uh, probably about five to ten years, if we're being completely honest, if we're being totally honest here, because um, it's it's essentially what a theater is, is a concession selling machine. <laughs> that's what it I mean, that's really what it does. Right, as, yeah. as anybody who works in a movie theater will tell you, the money is not made on the movies. The movies are what bring you in. The concessions is what everybody makes money on because you're selling it to them. You know, you're buying popcorn at cents on the dollar, these giant bags of popcorn. Uh, you're selling, you know, Coke and you're selling snow caps for four ninety five for a little box. Yeah. yeah it's kind of like how, uh, when you're selling soda, at, like from a soda fountain, you're not paying for the soda. You're paying for the container it comes in. Right. So that's, that's really what you're paying for. But, uh, yeah, those, I mean, the profit margins on most of that stuff is really, really high. So they want you to buy as much of it as possible and to get you in a captive place for two hours, you know, 90 minutes to two hours is a really good way to sell like gummy bears. You know what I mean? So, uh, I mean, it's, it's a lot of doubt, but it's a big part of the experience and they've kind of built that into it and we really enjoy it. You can't necessarily go to the theater and not have the popcorn and all those other things, but the business model, the activities that are based around actually visiting the theater to watch that, uh, that stuff that you can watch at home is, is just so flying in the face Mm -hmm. of things that are acceptable or safe now with the pandemic, just the whole idea. We talked about it off the air of everybody Sitting in a giant room, hundreds of people in a giant room, all breathing the same air, all eating the same stuff for hours at a time when what we know about how how it lingers in the air and gets transmitted, it just, you know, risk reward. You know, you love to see the movie, but you don't want to get sick. It just seems like the exact wrong thing that you should do. Yeah, it just it. I mean, and there are ways, um, you know, theaters like the Music Box over on Southport. Uh, luckily, they're a more classical style theater. It's one, you know, their main theater is one giant theater with uh, just under 800 seats. So being able to make a profit off of that is a possibility. And they only have two screening rooms. And one of them is like less than 100 seats. So you've got a really intimate one that they usually use for stuff that's kind of, you know, coming out of the rotation of what's being shown in theaters. And then they've got the big one for their big events, their 70 millimeter stuff, all that kind of, uh, all that kind of content. But when it comes to the business model, I mean, you could even take the pandemic out of it. Uh, people are increasingly watching movies at home. And uh, obviously we don't have stuff like, not because uh, Blockbuster didn't exist before, but with streaming, it's it's become literally easier than ever. You sit down, you turn on your TV, you might have a smart TV. You don't even have to turn on a separate box. You just turn on your TV, you go to Netflix, and then you've got thousands and thousands of options. And a lot of them are new. You know, Netflix is able and has been producing and exhibiting their own movies for a while now. And they're just pop they're just good enough. For people to say, well, I don't need to leave my house tonight. I can order a pizza and just sit in my uh, sit in my underwear and watch, I don't know, a remake of Spencer Confidential with Mark Wahlberg, you know, <laughs> which wasn't very good, by the way. But uh, who cares? It doesn't need to be that good. It's convenient. Well, and the, the technology is out there and to where it's accessible now. You don't have to be Elvis, right, to have your own basic theater room ah. and the screens are getting bigger and the cost is, is getting cheaper and it's it's 
kind of a business model that, you know, maybe may you mentioned Blockbuster, and that's one of those things that was as big as it could get. There was a Blockbuster on every corner in every town in America, and now it's down to just one. And there's a, you know, and, and they have to turn it into a Airbnb just to like kind of keep the lights on. I always, I always look at the, the blockbuster model kind of like the dinosaurs, except if the dinosaurs knew that the meteor was coming and had a big giant red box that they could get in to protect themselves and decided to let it hit the earth and say, we're going to be just fine. Because you had to think that that, like, how did they not, instead of red box, and when red box came out, I remember thinking, well, I'd rather go to, I'd rather trust Blockbuster with my movie because they already had, they sort of owned the genre. They sort of owned that that business. And if there would have been a blue box next to a red box, I would have chosen the blue box. I mean, they the had the market. Yeah. yeah, they had the market share. I can't believe that they did that. So now right. I cannot imagine, and, and I was talking a little bit earlier with some people about this this Airbnb that is that is a Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of fun to get in there. I don't know. There's things that are in the world of progress. I'm not sure that I'm, you know, having a romantic attachment with the whole blockbuster thing where you're sure. trying to get the one of the last four copies of Home Alone two, and then you've got the exorbitant, you know, charges for late fees. I mean, blockbuster it worked. We all did it because we had to. But the new stuff is way easier. It's way easier. And I don't know if you knew this. Blockbuster had the opportunity to buy Netflix. They full on had the opportunity. Not do th- because they didn't. They didn't have the foresight. Did they think that no one would? You they know. thought. They thought that. Oh my God! Who wants DVDs by mail? That's they. They let's not forget that Netflix started out as DVDs being delivered to your home. Abs- yes, and, yes, they and, did. And then they had this vision of DVDs like beamed to your home by the internet, and. Uh, Blockbuster thought it was preposterous. They were just like, there's no infrastructure for this. People don't have fast enough internet. It's never going to beat the quality of a hard copy, which is technically true. When you watch something on Netflix, it's compressed because it needs to stream kind of more or less flawlessly to your TV. Uh, When you have a physical product, it's going to be a little bit higher quality when you have a a disc. Uh, But at the end of the day, Blockbuster had the opportunity and no one saw the writing on the wall. They lacked the vision. So that's the issue that this industry I mean they is running owned into. The, they owned the for the people out there that may be a little bit younger and don't remember the I mean there were one there were blockbusters on every corner in yeah. every town. They owned the category. This is the, yeah, you talk you talk about blockbuster and video rentals in the same way we talk about Kleenex and tissue. That's just how it was, or iPods and as it comes to MP3 players. But now Netflix took that. Now what do you say? Oh, let's net, let's let's see what's on Netflix. I'm just going to stay home, Netflix and chill, that sort of thing. And it used to be like, oh, let's rent a movie. Now let's stream something on Netflix. So they took the opportunity to uh, uh, look forward and see what was coming with advancements in technology. Blockbuster scrambled for a while. They had their own VOD service. They even got rid of their late fees at their video stores. It didn't really matter. It didn't make a lick of difference. So the same thing is happening to movie theaters. They're having a crisis of business model. They don't know what happens next now because we can get theater-quality entertainment and really near-theater-quality exhibition in our own homes. Yeah. They tried to put the comfy chairs. I got a comfy chair at home you and do. I don't have to sit you next do, to some guy Tom, who's a you mouth do. breather. You do. You, know? you have a you have a comfy chair and if if someone can figure out a way to crack the code on the on the movie popcorn, and of course you probably have that recipe in your back pocket somewhere. I'll, I'll never give it away. No, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> That's my 11 herbs and spices, man. You don't I'm not going to tell you. Cuz if they don't, if they don't have that, then it's tough to make a case for 
you know, for the whole theater experience. I hate the idea because we've enjoyed a lot of family, you know, outings and memories and, and, and just the way that you can kind of enjoy that theater setting. But if you have to factor in, you know, whether it's pandemic or whether it's just the extra cost because it is expensive, it's tough. I mean, I, I hate that maybe for our, our grandkids, well, my kids are, you know, they've had lots of theater experiences. I'll have to explain the same thing to them as I do like a record store. Like they don't understand what a record store sure. is. But, you know, but they came back. Let me, I'll say that is that, you know, for a while people were just like, oh, well, Tower Records went away and, you know, record, you know, vinyl records went the way of the dodo. And yet here we are, I've got a record collection and I was born in 1993. I have no business really being into records. There's many people my age, no business being into records. And yet I can still go to Reckless Records and buy new albums. And um, even in the movie business, let's talk about drive-ins. How many people had to describe to kids, oh, yeah, there used to be this place where you got in your car, you drove, you turned on your FM radio, and you watched a movie from your car. And people thought, through yeah. Through your dirty it, windshield. Yeah, through your dirty windshield. <laughs> and uh, kids were making out in the in the Studebaker next to you. But um, the the whole thing was is that uh, now they became a very luxury kind of specialty item. They existed in little places kind of far away from major population centers. And then all of a sudden, a pandemic hits, and then it becomes the only way for you to go see a movie. Or Isn't even a concert. Or, or a concert, or so, someone to just talk, do a talk, or your high school graduation. Isn't that interesting? Like, the, they, we thought it was gone, drive-ins are a pa- thing of the past, and now here we are, they're literally scrambling to set up drive-ins for people to watch movies. So you never really know when it's going to come back around. Uh, things seem to fall out of fashion and come back, but uh, it's better to try to adapt early. We're going to have substitutes for the movie, and maybe workarounds, and maybe improvements for the movie-watching experience in some way. I still think there's, you know, there's something to seeing it. You know, live on that big screen with the crowd, right? Where everybody can, you know, cry at Coco together, right? Or maybe get a jump scare. You never know. But when it comes to live music, that is something that um, I think so many people can't wait to get back to. And uh, we're going to be talking with Greg Renoff when we come back from from the news. And uh, and he is a guy that has written. He's a historian. He is a music enthusiast and uh, and writer of some great books about Ted Templeman and some of the biggest bands ever, including Van Halen and some others. And we're going to talk to him about uh, the live music scene, some of the things that we've uh, kind of experienced and, and can't wait to get back to. And also, you know, Tom, when we talked with Frida Kelly, just the kind of phenomenon of the concert scene and some of these bands, especially on maybe the hard rock and heavy metal side, Kiss, we'll talk about them uh, as well and kind of how they've gone from point A, the start of it, all the way to where we see them today and hopefully in the future. So keep it here. Uh, quick break. It's time for news. Seven twenty WGN high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, and always excited to have on the line the author of Van Halen Rising. You know him from those books, of course. His new book, Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music, acclaimed author, music enthusiast, historian, the one and only Dr. Greg Renoff. Welcome back to WGN. Hey, thanks for having me on again. 
it's always great to have you on. I, I don't ever, I feel like we're always sort of connected and occasionally, you know, every few days, like you'll have something on, on Twitter or social media that a lot of people are responding to. And for whatever reason, even if the context is, you know, 20, 30 years old, oftentimes there's a current and modern day connection to it, but you always feel compelled. And I am always, I don't want to say surprised because here I am participating in it as well, but I'm kind of like shocked and impressed with that, you know, just the, the enthusiasm and the passion that people have for music, specific music bands. Of course, our affinity for Van Halen is there, but also a lot of other bands in that sort of formative heavy metal era. And, uh, and so that's, so that's cool. I was thinking of you the other day, had an opportunity to interview Frida Kelly and Frida Kelly was calling in live from Liverpool, England, and she is the first president of the Beatles fan club. And what what I think struck me, not only just the historical nature of it all, and of course the impact that the Beatles have as a band and all that, but just that it was the formative kind of time period in in just fandom and just kind of musicianship, certainly the, the songs and all that, they, they stand on their own. But none of the things that we kind of take for granted today as far as the performance part of it, the showbiz part of it that we see in a lot of the bands that you and I are going to be talking about now even existed then. And even the fandom and kind of corralling what would be your fan base, fan club kind of situation, having them kind of coalesce uh, and, and have an identity as supporters of and kind of members of that team just didn't exist yet. And so it was fascinating. I saw something online where you were talking, I think, about David Lee Roth being the opening act for KISS. And, and when it comes to formative bands, you know, we, we talk about Van Halen, but KISS was one of those bands that had that was one of kind of those, like, wow, this really, this, you know, this resonated with a kid, you know, like a younger kid at the time, and then, you know, grew into like a teenager and still have a, you know, a fascination with and I think a support and appreciation for the band that is still today, right, still active today. So, so let's talk about it. Like when it comes to Kiss, as a guy who studies this and sees this in a different way, right? You see it from the from sort of the historical way, sort of the uh, you know kind of the precedent setting way, and the things like Kiss was really one of those groundbreaking groups. Yeah, and I think the uh, the analogy there to the Beatles is a good one too, because you, you, Kiss, I, I think, overtly, I mean, I think Gene and Paul really understood that they wanted to build a band where all four members would be identifiable and they did it their own way with the face makeup and sort of making each guy have his own sort of quote personality space ace and kind of the cat man and all this stuff. And, you know, it is, it is interesting to think about that. Um, also in terms of what you were mentioning about the basically the, you know, the beginnings with the Beatles were really with that first fan club and really starting to gear up towards really thinking about how to build a fan base that was going to be connected to the band and beyond just sort of going to a concert and, Maybe buying a record was more about an identity thing, and I uh, I, I think back to um, a conversation I had with a, a gentleman who was an engineer who worked for Warner Brothers and doing the Templeman book, and he had actually worked on one of the early, quite elderly now, but he worked on one of the first Buddy Holly records and was kind of talking about how you know, wow. primitive the recording me- methods were, and um, you know just basically even the touring was so by the seat of its pants back then. It was just you know, they all get literally get in a station wagon and drive across the country and. They'd play on a flatbed truck at a fairgrounds. There was no arenas. There was no real, um, you know, infrastructure like we take for granted today with the way concerts are done with uh, routing and with shows and lighting and all these things. So it is, it is curious to sort of do, um, to think back on those early days of rock and roll music in the sixties and even earlier than that in the fifties. And then kind of kisses that, that transition that they were massively significant, I think, and, and really, 
opening up the, the full potential to see, you know, how can you really, really market a band in a way that goes beyond um, the way some other bands are doing it. And the Beatles, you know, I was doing some of that in the 60s, and the Monkees sort of like built on that too. But I think Kiss, Gene and Paul particularly, really, really saw the potential and really fully, fully, as you know, anyone who grew up in the 70s remembers everything from Kiss lunchboxes, the Kiss posters, <laughs> the Kiss thermoses, the like stickers, it. the comic books. They, they figured out the way to sort of exploit the entire gamut of, uh, of things um, when it came to sort of connecting people with their... Uh, their band and their image of their band and it, it had not happened before before the beatles they didn't necessarily know exactly what to do with it but they did try to they kind of understood let's take sort of ownership of the idea that you know that you support us and we're going to support you back some innovative ideas on on some of the swag right you know that they had or just different ways to kind of connect uh the fan base with the band and, and like you said greg is to kind of have have them be able to take on that identity not just hey i like that song or that song means something to me or i appreciate it or even i like the band and their music it's like you're on yeah. you're on the team you're in and it was like the kiss kiss army right you know they actually went one went from fan club to uh, sort of a draft right and they had the the kiss army now when when you think about those guys and they have been enterprising and really business first when it comes to kind of taking ownership of of the band and the marketing and the merchandise i think you can even get a kiss casket was it always and for some of the conversations or maybe talking to fans or other people contemporaries in the industry is it they all did did they have like a plan from like go because it seemed like it was i don't want to say calculated but at least for paul and uh and gene it was like you know they sort of had a plan to take over the world from the get-go yeah and i think i think they really had good management i mean that's i think bill coin obviously it goes without saying was a great manager was able to really um work with those guys very closely they were they had a, a relationship with him that lasted for you know very very long time and i think the other thing that's kind of interesting is that you think about the record industry uh, and, and having done the Templeman book and I'd done the Van Halen book, I had to think more closely about this. You know, a lot of the, the record deals remained really artist unfriendly in many sort of ways. The record company made most of the money off a record. And so, but with merchandise, you know, the band that was, especially t-shirts, these types of things, that was, you know, licensing the image, that was all revenue that could be pushed back to the band you know, kind of free and clear of the record company, and they were able to take a much larger chunk of that. I mean, that's really, you know, um, something that even going forward, we talk about Van Halen, and Van Halen really exploited that to the up, the utmost. The interesting uh, thing Van Halen and its management did in the in the 70s and the 80s is that they, people who saw Van Halen during the David Lee Roth years, remember this, Van Halen was kind of notorious for bringing out completely unknown, seemingly unsuitable <laughs> opening acts. There were a couple of exceptions, a band like Callus. Billy Sheehan was a good rock band, but for the most part, most of the bands that opened for Van Halen during the Dave Lee Roth years were basically unknowns or just sort of really fairly weak bands. And the whole idea behind that was was to put on opening acts that would almost encourage people who got there early to leave the concert hall and go out into the aisles of the arena. They called they called it the band called it called them T shirt bands. That was the idea was to basically go okay, we don't want something that's going to keep people focused and looking at a stage before we come on. We want people who are going to be like, this is not any good or I don't like this. You know, it might be a good band, but this isn't my musical taste. I'm going to go out and buy a Van Halen t-shirt in the time before the show. And so, you know, the merch angle too, of course, of course, Kiss is really the, you know, the ones who really um, have done that. And, you know, and thinking even more forward now, I'd encourage people to think about when you go into Target, going to Walmart, of course, now we have to wear a mask and go into these stores. 
you know, all the band logos on the t-shirts that are for sale in these stores where you would just go into the kids section. It's like a Rolling Stones t-shirt. You could buy like a, you know, like a, a onesie for your baby <laughs> with uh, the, the, the Stones tongue on it, which is kind of was unthinkable 50 years ago. But of course, that's part of this too, is to sort of, okay, we're not selling as many records anymore. We need more revenue streams come in. So we're going to license and to exploit our logos and our image and really, you know, market the band that way to a whole nother generation. So you think about a band like Kiss, which really, I think, pioneered that sort of thinking that, oh, yeah, well, why wouldn't we put our, our logo on on anything? You know, that's what they kind of thought. It's it's really sinking, and that's what it is. And you want to let the listeners know, of course, we're talking with Dr. Greg Renoff, historian, author, uh, music enthusiast, and because none of that stuff existed before. So to think like that was kind of revolutionary. But you're right. You know, now you can go into these these iconic logos, right? You could get yourself a, a Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon onesie for your kid pretty easily now when those things were only seen. And it was very exclusive, right? You had to go to the you had to go to the show. You had to go to the venue. The internet right. didn't exist. You couldn't buy it online. You had to either be a member of a fan club or go and see it live and have that be part of not only the, the revenue stream, but also the marketing kind of philosophy was groundbreaking. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation uh, with Greg Renoff. We're going to talk about Kiss. Of course, they're a big, one of those kind of formative founding uh, mentors to Van Halen as well, and just how sort of it's shaped, you know, from whether it's Kiss era on the things that they do on stage and certainly on the marketing, kind of engaging with the fans to the things that are happening on stage and in concert tours today. So quick break. Keep it here. It's Dane on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio, and on the line, continuing uh, our conversation with uh, Dr. Greg Renoff, author of Van Halen Rising, and then of course the new book Ted Templeman's, uh, the Platinum Producer's Life in Music. And through the process of writing the books, probably so many fascinating conversations, things that you wanted to know because you grew up as a music fan, as a, as a guy, as a concert goer, right? And that's something I think that not only resonates with the the readers of the books but also on social media is that is you know what is it like now to be able to have experienced it as a kid as a fan where some of these people seem like they were you know unattainable like superstars right and then now here you are getting to talk with them kind of find out all those sort of things that you wondered yeah it's, it's definitely a, a, a pinch me moment at times that I, you know when i really think about the fact that i was fortunate enough to be able to write a book with ted templeman who produced so many of the records i loved as a kid and uh yeah, I mean, thinking about the whole experience of going to see these acts and them being larger than life and me holding up the record and looking at the, the liner notes and be able to write a book about a band like Van Halen that I love so much and continue to love so much and then to be able to work with their record producer on his authorized biography has been uh, an incredible experience. But for me, you know, what really drove me to want to do these books is my own desire to want to learn more and to understand more about how the records were made and how the band came together, whether it be Van Halen or, or with, you know, in the Templeman book and thinking about how these albums were constructed from the ground up and his, his take as the, as that, the, um, you know, the person who got to partner most closely with the band members and making new records and how he saw 
the, the compositions come together and the, the sessions and what his vision was, what he wanted the band to appear like on record. So it's been an incredible experience for me. Well, we're talking a little bit about uh, Kiss have been in the conversations and still out there touring to this day. Earlier in our other segment, you had an opportunity to talk with a, a, a contemporary of Buddy Holly and they would come in with a flatbed truck and, a, and an amp. And even the Beatles, my mom saw the Beatles, here's, the Beatles here in Chicago at the International Amphitheater, I don't know, maybe 10, 15,000 people. And all they they had yep. they just came on stage with those little kind of basically practice size amps and just played and all the every all the kids screamed so loud no one could even hear any songs or or even knew what was going on and then it was all over i mean it seemed like the live performance part of it that is again you know just like the merchandising such a big part of what the bands can add as dollars wise especially these days just was one of those things that sort of evolved over time yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I have an uncle who um, who just turned 65, and he is a small boy. Uh, he was born in 55, so he was about 10, and the Beatles came to, to New York, and my grandfather got tickets and took them to Shea Stadium. And it was they tell the same story, which was that, you know, the the, the Beatles came on stage, you couldn't hear anything. What's even more uh, ludicrous is that apparently they the, the idea was to basically try to mic the amps and run it through the public address system. Like, you know, when you would sit in the baseball stadium and they, they're batting forth, number 12, you know, Mickey Mantle or whatever, you know, that was the idea. That was how they were going to try to get the sound in the stadium from the stage. And it was just, of course, you couldn't hear anything. And of course, it's, yeah, it's such a, it's such a totally different, a different uh, thing. And, you know, the, the, uh, the thing too, I think, you know, I actually learned from talking to Ted Templeman about this. He saw the shows in San Francisco um, when he was a young man, when they came to the cow palace and, and the crowds were just absolutely fanatical. Um, and have you know, people jumping on stage, girls trying to get to them. And, and, uh, when, uh, I worked on the book with Ted, Ted actually got to become friends with George Harrison in the seventies. George was on Warner brothers wow. and, uh, George Harrison kind of confided to Ted, you know, that, that look, you know, a lot of people thought we were living this dream life. He said it was terrifying because you didn't feel like you were going to be safe because there were so, you know, the, the crowds were so, were so, um, so over enthusiastic and there really wasn't the proper, security the police are tackling kids all the time there really wasn't the type of security that you'd expect today at a concert he said a lot of times they were just scared to death that they were just going to get you know um get hurt just from people going so so wild at these shows so all that stuff of course is you know it changed so radically with the way the concert industry has become much more of a um you know uh, kind of forward thinking about these types of things and making sure the artists are safe and that the concerts are able to be heard and everything. It's such a, you sit in your seat, you sit up top, there's a video screen. The sound is usually pretty clear. You can see everything. You can hear everything. It's just a completely different animal than it was 50 years ago. Yeah. And you look at Kiss when they first started, not terrified by that, but willing to embrace and kind of create that environment to be able to, to maximize it. You look at Van Halen with the whole wall of amps and all that kind of stuff. And what a contrast to what they were trying to do. You know, what those early bands were trying to do, you know, on a tour, trying to be there and, and be more things to more people, give people what they want. They could sell tickets. It's just crazy to think that they were going to mic it and run it through the public address system that that would that would even uh work when it comes to kiss you know were they the first ones at least in your opinion and there's so much of that stuff going on now in almost every concert that's kind of brought that whole kind of show to it right it wasn't just guys playing music there was whether it was the pyrotechnics or the fire or the blood or whatever is that they built a lot of let's say just like theater into what was heavy metal yeah, I mean, I think they, I think they definitely were were um, stepping on the on the shoulders of Alice Cooper in a lot of ways, I and mean, I think I think Cooper, oh, yeah. 
Well, I don't think it's enough credit for a lot of that stuff. You, you know, even the I things agree. he still does today with the snakes and the and the electric chair and the whole the whole the guillotine. He does a lot of the same stuff, but but um, you know, they took it to a whole a whole different level. And just to think about how how huge they got, it's uh, it really is you know remarkable selling out Anaheim Stadium and sort of becoming this this act that absolutely was the biggest the biggest concert attraction in the country. Uh, you know, I would say in 77, 76, that, that, that time frame. But the shows were so over the top from the blood spitting to the fire, to the stages, to the, the drum risers, the, the whole, the whole performance itself. And plus the whole mystery around them, which was so genius too, that they came up with the costumes yes. and the makeup, you know, kind of going to see them was something special. And I think that that's something that, um, I think gets lost a little bit today. You know, it's, I, I don't think we should necessarily lament it, but it was certainly a thing where people talked about, you know, if you went to see that, you had to go, for it. you know, you weren't going to see Zeppelin on TV. You listen to them on radio. If you were going to go, you know, experience Zeppelin, you had to go. There was no ability to, um, you know, to really experience it unless you were going to go see the midnight movie or something like that. Go see song made the same. It was just going to see the act in concert with the way you really could embrace the, the experience of fandom most directly. And that was, you know, one another reason why the, the concert, um, industry was so huge in the yeah. 70s and it was just such a big a big business it's so strange because it was something intangible that people didn't necessarily know or plan and i guess beethoven and mozart were doing concerts and so i mean the, the concept in general was something that that existed but the, it seemed as though there were so many more people who wanted to see these bands and see them live and have that live experience and the live experience was kind of kind of a trailing you know, kind of concept and a sort of a trailing technology to kind of, you know, make things all things that they could be. It's when it comes to like Zeppelin and, and, and certainly Van Halen, we, we didn't have the technology on the internet side and even on the home theater side or ability to really capture an experience. And so seeing a live show was something that was really, really special. One of the last things on, on Kiss before we get to live shows and how we miss them and maybe some of those venues is they really did kind of crack the code because there was something that was, I mean, they're spitting blood and he has a, you know, Gene Simmons has a an eight inch, t- you know, he's the devil or whatever, but yet somehow didn't they manage, I think they might've been a guest on Scooby-Doo, but also Kiss Meets the Phantom. This was like family fun entertainment, like where they got together to solve like mysteries or crimes or something in what was a regular kind of live action show. Yeah, I, I think the of course the, and the end result was that they became overexposed. I, mean, I think that's probably one of the things that actually hurt Kiss in the long run. But that was, I mean, that was the the approach was to think, okay, the thinking was, if we exploit eight-year-olds to Kiss, we'll have a whole other generation of fans that'll be just as enthusiastic in the 1980s as we have now at the 20-year-olds and the 16-year-olds and the 17-year-olds in 1977. And, and you know, that didn't work. Um, you know, Kiss sort of like, you know, like a lot of bands, they sort of have their, their peak and they run their course and they had to sort of reinvent themselves. But that was the, that was the thinking. I think that was the outcoin. You know, I'm not the, the biggest expert on Kiss, but I really do believe that was outcoin and Kiss's approach was to sort of say, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll turn on the pictures to Kiss by having us in cartoons and, and having us on lunchboxes and thermoses and all the, like we mentioned, all the sort of the things that, um, I think probably previously were, were, you know, considered to be, well, you know, why would you want to put your band on a, <laughs> on a lunchbox or really directly marketed to little, to little kids, you know, the little kids, but that was part of the thing. But there were so many musicians, um, that you talk to, I mean, you know, you've interviewed, I'm sure dozens of them. We'll talk to you about, you know, Hey, you know, Halloween, 1977, we were, we dressed up, me and my brothers dressed up as kiss and we had cardboard guitars and, 
you know, Paul, you know, Paul Gilbert's a classic example that he's talked about that, um, from Mr. Big, that this was the, this was the, the spark for these guys. Um, yeah. uh, you know, so many of these, these, these Steve Brown, a trickster, this, this is, this was the, the lit the fuse for them, that whole, when they were relatively young, it lit the fuse for them. Um, older brothers got them into kiss or they, you know, sort of came to this themselves and they were young, basically children, really, you know, they weren't even teenagers, they were children and they got turned on to this rock music by play. Well, even when you couldn't necessarily play the, you know, the musical parts of it or, or do that, you could still do the fun, the theater type part of it and full confession. Like I actually, I had an Ace Frehley action figure. So <laughs> I just absolutely love it. So I had one of the, like the dolls that they had, you know, I mean, it was an action. Let's, let's just make it clear for the listeners. It was an action figure. It wasn't a doll. So, uh, but I had one of those. And so it yeah. was, it was when we come back. We're going to continue our conversation with uh, Dr. Greg Renoff. We're going to talk about live music. Back in the day, it was basically the only way to fully experience that band doing what it is that they do best. Now with the pandemic, so many of our great festivals and, and musical appearances and concerts, Lollapalooza, virtual, pushed to the to the to the sidelines, postponed, canceled. So when we come back, we're going to reminisce about some of those uh, great venues. We're going to talk about some great shows. So keep it here at Stain on seven twenty WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago Skyline Studio, thirty eight states in Canada. And this time of the year, typically, there would be so many different festivals, music festivals, concert series, uh, outdoor venues, in all sorts of different manner and means of live performance. Especially now, when that's how bands can really kind of not only connect with their fans but also connect on the financial side, since that business has completely changed. And so, Greg, welcome back. Good to be back. I wanted to to let you know, I took my girls, I've got two girls, and at the time I think they were 11 and maybe 7, two, they had to go to the Taylor Swift concert, and she had sold out multiple nights at Soldier Field here in Chicago, and wow. it was... I got to tell you, as a guy who has worked so many different shows and seen kind of everything from your bare bones, you know, whether it was a basic, you know, heavy metal or Metallica with no frills to, you know, Madonna on the whatever, who's that girl tour or something where she did have a lot of different elements built into it. When I saw that, just from a respect, what it takes to put together, that thing was amazing. There were like 60 foot fire breathing dragons and snakes and entire stadium filled with with uh time sequenced blinking neon led lights and, and all that and i had to tell the girls that all concerts this was their first concert I mean, all concerts aren't like this in fact this is as good this is as this is absolutely 100 percent as good as it gets you know and i think that one of them went to see with their mom christina aguilera months later and was completely uh, underwhelmed uh it was it was it was fantastic <laughs> It was crazy. Yeah, it's funny. I was just thinking, it's like it's like taking someone to the Super Bowl as their first football game, having to tell them like yeah. every football game is like this. Yeah, it's it, exactly. So for you, like growing up, obviously a fan of music, going to to shows and all that kind of stuff. What was it that? And I'm sure a lot of the listeners will be able to relate to this. What was it that? What was some of those amazing, like either first moments that connected it to you? Not necessarily to one specific band, but just live music and seeing it in that setting. Well, I mean, you know there was always such an energy 
the day of a show. I think I don't know if that's still you know maybe that's your your daughter's experience that when they go to see Taylor Swift that's what they think about all day. But that's all you would think about all day in school or whatever it was. That was the show, and you go and um, you know when I was when I got to be old enough to drive, we would we would tailgate. We would go and park at the Meadowlands and. You know the uh, state police there were pretty pretty tolerant, um, at least for a time period when you could sort of hang out and drink beer and whatever, and just you know. Go, and then you would go in, and there would just be that that energy in the air. Um, and of course, it was always fun too to see these staging because you know there was no. I know it's sort of you know a cliche. We've been talking about this, you know, but there was no ability to sort of see it ahead of time. Um, you may have seen a picture in a magazine of of you know, um, Iron Maiden's recent tour, but you wouldn't have been able to see the whole set. And you would, you would go in there and if it was the Power Slave tour or the, or the Somewhere in Time tour, I saw that one and you would see this incredible staging with the lights and the, and the lasers and the effects. And it was to actually see that production live. There was really no other way to, as we kind of talked about, to sort of have a preview of that. So for me, that was always the kind of like, oh my God, that was incredible to, you know, whether it was Rush or, or it was Van Halen or any of the other bands you saw. And then and the other thing too, it's interesting for me thinking back is sort of was the, the, the chance to see people who even at the time were legends. I, I got to see the firm in 1985 and, you know, kind nice. of a band that's, you know, maybe pretty, pretty forgettable in a lot of ways. That was Paul Rogers and, and Jimmy Page. But at the time that was bad company and Led Zeppelin, it was any of the guys who, you know, sort of were the, the, the two formative guys who really built 70s rock in a lot of ways. To see, oh my God, that's Jimmy Cage. It was, you know, that was, that was even more than going, that's David Lee Roth. It was kind of interesting because it was almost like you realized that that person, Jimmy Cage, had built this band, Led Zeppelin, and just sort of already had been become the absolute titans of the, uh, of rock history. It was just to kind of see these people in the flesh like that. It was just an amazing, incredible, um, experience. So I, you know, so many good memories of those, of those shows to be able to go and, you know, whether, again, whether it was seeing anyone from, um, you know, seeing Motley Crue to any of these other bands, which for, for me, I guess, the thing to that, that, that idea of kind of seeing the, 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 the legends, the who, I saw the who in the eighties too. Again, it's sort of, that's Roger Daltrey. That's Pete Townsend. Nice. It meant something to me as a fan, you know, even as a 17 year old or a 20 year old, whatever I was at the time, it sort of be like, well, that, those guys are really the, 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 the elder statesman at the time of the of the type of music I love. You know, it's it's weird that you mention it because, and we've talked a little bit about that common thing of of sort of some of this unprecedented uh, situations, whether it was the the band or the music or the fan base or just all those kind of logistics that make the whole thing work, and then have it sort of go to the point. Because there was a time when I was a kid that I could not imagine, you know, a seventy year old rock star that was still like, you know, because it was like it would be Lawrence Welk or somebody like really really right. old, right? And now you have bands like you know the Rolling Stones, even Paul McCartney. You know, a couple years ago he was here at. Um, he was here and he was the same Lollapalooza that had Metallica. And so you see that kind of broad range of music. He was just killing it and he's got to be, you know, in his, in his mid seventies. And so that's something to, to, I think it's a good scene too, is to, to be able to kind of know that you can and still can now experience some of that great music played live by some of those people that really would be older than what you would think is a traditional rock star. It's, that's really funny. You bring that up. We were, we were talking about this on Twitter and, uh, uh, people where we were reminiscing a number of us, probably you two were reminiscing back to this, this steel wheels tour that was came with 89 or something like that, you know, yeah. 25 years ago. And, and people were observing that at the time, 
people were calling it the steel wheelchairs tool where they were making <laughs> jokes about how old it and uh awesome. you know it was and there were these articles and you know in usa today about how old these guys were 40 you know, mick jagger was 46 and it was considered a completely uh, people were incredulous that a 46 year old man would want to go on the road and play shows that they wouldn't be retired and of course, you know, you now we look at it as sort of as ludicrous is that anyone would think at 46 you should quit. But that was the that was the perspective of people that that was that was sort of like, wow, this guy is super old to be doing this. <laughs> That's how old he was, 46 or 47 in 1989. Ooh, and so you see some of those bands coming out and still doing successful tours. People are going to see it, and, and you Amazing. know, as, a, as the fan base has grown along with them, whether it's whether it's seeing you two like in Iowa on the Joshua Tree tour, right? Or then they come here and they'll sell out Soldier Field and they'll they'll go ahead and have huge concerts. So it's always kind of cool to be able to see you saw them when you mentioned Motley Crue. We've all got, I got to work lots and lots of shows at Alpine Valley. Of course, lots of the listeners um, had tons and tons of memories of great shows that came through there um, as well. So we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation, at least one more segment with uh, Dr. Greg Renoff. We're going to talk about some of those great shows, some of those great bands that are still either performing or people are looking for them to continue today. So keep it here. It's Dane on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you. Hi, atop Chicago Skyline Studio, and on the line with us, uh, acclaimed author, enthusiast on the musical side, and of course, historian, the one and only Dr. Greg Renoff. So, Greg, come back, coming back as as we look back to you know times in the past where you know you see some of these bands. In our last segment, we talked about you know the Rolling Stones performing now, and and when it was like back in eighty nine on Steel Wheels, they were considered really old. I don't, they were younger than I think I am right now. So it was one of those things where it's hard to imagine but we're still able to kind of enjoy and actually see some of our favorite bands from whatever level of, of notoriety not all of them are the biggest bands in the world but they're still out there kind of touring and performing and the part of it is because people want to see it so when you think back to some of your experiences for bands that are maybe still either in the headlines or current or that people remember today but you saw them kind of back in those more formative years what would be a couple that would come to mind Oh, I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, Motley Crue would be it would be one. I, I first saw them on uh, Girls, Girls, Girls tour, and they were you know they were really were at the time larger than life. I mean, they had become they become you know everyone knows one of the most popular bands on MTV, and they they uh, they really did kind of uh, exceed my expectations in a lot of ways because they kind of delivered the sort of rock show you wanted. They swigged the Jack Daniels, they had the explosions go off on stage, and they did all the all the songs you would want to do. And, you know, and, uh, even though they retired, as we all know, they were going to, they were going to go out this summer, I believe with, uh, Joan Jett, if I'm remembering correctly, and that all got postponed, but just they'll do it again. Um, next year. That's, you know, the, for me, that's really a kind of an interesting, um, one for me because, you know, they were a band who came to the fore in the eighties and now are sort of looking to wind it down. Presumably, presumably they're looking to wind it, wind it down in the, even when we think back, as I mentioned, on the bands in the '60s, like The Who, were still, were still doing shows as of this spring, or supposed to. Do, they were supposed to do shows in Vegas this spring, and they got canceled. So even you know bands that got their start in the early to mid '60s are still going, which is just as you point out, it's just remarkable. Motley Crue, when you mention them, that it 
I actually worked the the girls 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 tour a little bit and they were yeah they were every bit of that right they were all there like bigger than life and you had all of the things that you would want whether it's like you know the pyrotechnics and and just a lot of the excitement they had honed that kind of showbiz thing plus you had tommy lee too you know was one of the more exciting drummers i think it was during that tour did he have the drum kit that like picked up and then like moved around over the crowd you know he would be drumming upside down and some other things funny story i think listeners will you know if you run into some uh you know people that are famous or people that you appreciated what it is that they did so for tommy lee when i was working this was at alpine valley and i had all i had with me was a ten dollar bill that i was going to use on concessions and later and there during sound check was tommy lee was up by the sound booth and so i had asked him i said can i have your autograph they didn't have we didn't have cell phones no such thing as selfies there was no way to do anything else so and the only thing i had for him to write on was a ten dollar bill now i had in college i had that ten dollar bill pinned like on the wall and it had tommy lee's signature on it and i remember when things got tight and i needed you know to buy more ramen or natural light or whatever it is we were consuming at the time i had to go to the gas station and maybe and i needed some gas and i tried to explain it to the gas station guy that this ten this particular ten dollar bill was more valuable it was worth more than ten dollars and it was it was a long conversation that got absolutely nowhere nowhere and so that i mean that i thought that was just kind of a crazy story i got an opportunity a couple years ago um, at, at Guy's birthday party, who's friends with um, with Tommy Lee, to to tell Tommy Lee that story, and uh, and actually kind of share that with him, which was kind of which was kind of cool. So to see them on that tour was great. But that you still have a big fan base that would love to. They could still do really well attended shows today. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually think that tour would have done. I mean, that's the thing. The tragedy of twenty twenty are so many levels with so many people being ill and dying, obviously, and then you know for the concert industry. There were so many, I think there were so many tours that really would have done well this summer. Um, and as we've been kind of hinting, you know, now with, unless you're a Spotify top 50 artist, which really nobody in rock is, you know, it's just basically hip hop and pop dominates that your, your revenue stream comes through touring. That's where your money comes from. Um, not from selling CDs anymore. Obviously it's not from selling records anymore. It's going to be from going on the road, selling merch and, and playing performances. And so it's been, it's been devastating. I think that was, you know, that was, um, I'm sure for a lot of these guys too, especially a band like Molly Crew, you know, you sort of have your your sort of uh, financial future kind of locked up in this this one. Another one kind of um, closer to home with the book I just did with uh, Ted Templeman is that the Dewey Brothers were this is their 50th anniversary and they had a big uh, 50th anniversary reunion tour plan with oh, Michael wow. McDonald. Oh, that's so awesome! Be Tom Johnson, um, you know, kind of the first era of the Doobie Brothers with Michael McDonald, the second era of the Doobie Brothers, and they were going to do a whole run. They're being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And so it was, you know, it's a tremendous disappointment um, for those guys and for fans, obviously, to not be able to see them on that, you know, which may have been sort of one of their, you know, their, their quote-unquote farewell tours where they would have sort of, you know, been like, hey, we've been doing this for 50 years and we're probably not going to go out and do it with Mike McDonald. He's a, he's a solo artist, and this is supposed to be a special year. It's going to be postponed for next year, but, you know, it's, it's got to be financially tough, I would imagine, on some level, because like anybody, you sort of think, okay, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we keep the band going as a business. We're going to do these shows this summer. You know, we have crew to pay. We have these different expenses. And then that all gets kicked down the road. It's got to be tough. 
312-981-7200. When we get done with our conversation uh, with Greg Ranoff, people can call in. You can certainly text in as well and share your first kind of band music concert experience, and we'll get that from Greg right now. My first concert experience was I saw, and this is, I saw it um, it was the Scorpions, were the main act and the opening act was Bon Jovi and this was on it might have been the Blackout Tour it might have been Love It First Sting but Bon Jovi didn't really have they didn't all they had was Runaway they had they maybe played like 20 minutes they didn't do a whole lot but when you look at what they've achieved and of course with your background in that area too New Jersey and uh, in that New York area so that was it for me for you what was your what was like one of the first your first concert or first couple concerts that you saw that really kind of made it stick for you well the interesting one for me is that the first one that really made a big impression on me, I have to thank my sister for it. My sister was a big Go-Go's fan. And uh, <laughs> wow. I, I, my mom bought the tickets, and I can't remember what happened, whether one of my sister's friends couldn't go or something. You know, it was not a band that I was into um, at the time, but you know, my sister was going, my mom was going, and there was an extra ticket, so I went along. But I, we went to Madison Square Garden, and I just remember the frenzy. I mean, that was, you know, I'd never been to a, a big arena concert where that was my first one and my sister's first one too. So we were, we were young, 12, 13. And the whole, the whole top level of Madison Square Garden was shaking. And so that, you know, that, you know, even if the, you know, the concert in retrospect in terms of the staging and the lighting is nothing compared to what it was for the concerts I went to later, the Van Halen's and the Molly Cruz and the ones we've talked about, but it just, it sort of, when you could see the absolute pandemonium of the fans and how excited they were for this, it, it definitely, sets off something in your brain. It definitely got me to be like, wow, this is really cool to go to a concert in a in a, an arena in Madison Square Garden to see this type of, of show and not in a theater or something like that. But that was the first big, big, big arena show I ever saw was was uh yeah, eighty two the go go. And they were, you know, at the time they were a huge, yeah. huge band, you know, all over M T V and everything and it was uh it was something that really yeah, I had very good memories of that because it was the first to see like, whoa, oh, there's twenty thousand kids in here all screaming and singing along. There's something they're irreplaceable. There's something transcendent about live music and that performance. It brings the people together that love, obviously the the bands that they're coming to hear. But I think just in general, just the um, just the the format, right? Just just what it is and kind of what it means. And there's something I think it just kind of moves you inside, right? There's something about it that's really really special. So hopefully we'll be able to get back to all of that uh, sooner rather than later, hopefully 2021, be able to get out there and experience some of these kind of dream matchups, dream tours, dream everything on the concert side. And it's really cool to see some of these bands that are a little older in age, but still finding a way to come out and create what is you know, kind of amazing and memorable music experience for their fans in the live concert setting. So before we let you go, Greg, give information about the, um, about the books. The Ted Templeman book is out there. It is doing absolutely great. And this is a great and very unique kind of insight into so many of those bands, many of that, you know, that are still relevant and current today, but on the formative side for the production. Yeah. I would, uh, urge people to check out, um, the book. It's, uh, it's Ted's whole life from his childhood up through the, uh, the years where he was a uh, vice president of Warner Brothers and produced the Doobie Brothers, Van Halen, Nicolette Larson, Honeymoon Suite. I mean, there's the Aerosmith. The list is just absolutely endless. And I got to really have a ringside seat with Ted and hear his stories and how these records are made. Um, uh, yeah, I really am uh, just uh, thrilled with the reception it's gotten. And it, it, if you're a Van Halen fan or a fan of any of these bands, um, it gives you a wholly different perspective. Because as I, I mentioned earlier, it, it's the the person who was the closest collaborator with these bands in the studio, the, the guy who was there kind of helping them figure out which songs are going to go, what other records going to sound and 
work with them on their lyrics and their melodies and these types of things. It, it really is a, a whole different uh, way of being a band from the perspective of the person who had to help them get their sound on a record. So it's uh, called Ted Temple and the Platinum Producers Like the Music. Yeah, and for those people that are trying to get more insight into things that they care about and have loved for, for years and for decades and for different bands, it's kind of like what you said, is when you first got to those concert venues back in the day and you could see things, right? You couldn't see them maybe from uh, maybe in a magazine or some other thing, and to be able to see it live and in front and in person. And that's kind of what you do in the literary sense is you bring people to places that they would never be uh, and be able to kind of experience those events in different ways through the books. And so appreciate you taking time out and jumping on. Just We covered a lot of ground tonight, and uh, <laughs> but I appreciate you kind of sharing your thoughts, your perspectives, some of those memories, and uh, thanks for jumping on the show tonight. It was great. I really enjoyed it. I always enjoy it anytime. Seven twenty WGN, hi atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio. It is uh, Dane here with you, and uh, excited to have good friend of the program uh, on the line with us when it comes to captured travel media, where the wild things roam, Africa encompassed. She is the editor, travel journalist, photographer, the one and only Kate Webster, all the way from Mermaid Beach in Australia. Welcome to WGN. Hello, how are you going, Dane? We're doing okay, and I want to say that. We're not doing as as well as, with a name like Mermaid Beach, it just sounds like such a pleasant, kind of cool place to be. You know, We're dealing with a pandemic here, number one. I think we've had some looting and rioting, and the city's on lockdown, so Chicago could be better. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> really sorry to hear that. Yeah. Well, give us a little insight and uh, into some some places that, you know, some things that are happening. Obviously, the world has gone through a lot of the different challenges. And so you can share some of those that may be going on in Australia. And I know before we let you go, we want to talk about, you know, some of the things that are happening near and dear on the Africa side of things and the and the challenges going on there. But for for Australia, you can give us a day in the life. How is it going over there with the pandemic? Are you guys working through it? Oh, look, I think we're um, struggling just as much as anyone out there. It's, we have our challenges. Uh, I am based, like you said, at Mermaid Beach on the Gold Coast. So I guess in that sense, I'm quite lucky where I live near the beach. Um, within, what, maybe five minutes walk, I'm on the beach. So I am getting to get out and get some fresh air and I guess just, Keep calm with everything that's happening. I know that that uh, it's affecting a lot of people, and I mean it's it's just uncertain times out there in the world, really. So, but look, Australia, we do have definitely have our struggles. Uh, the state that I live in, Queensland, we seem to be doing okay at the moment. There are some states down south that are in serious lockdown, and they will be for quite some time to come. But you know, we're sending our love down to them and trying to keep them positive and motivated and I'm sure we'll all come out of this at the end and we'll learn something that we don't, might not know it yet but um, worldwide I think it's just going to be a big learning curve for everyone and when we, we figure out what that is and how we can better come out of this um, I think well, look, I for one can't wait uh, as you know I'm a traveller traveller by heart and it's hard for me to sit still and um, I think uh, I mean there's a lot of things affecting everything in the world at the moment with this pandemic so but look we will battle through it and offer support to whoever we can along the way and and 
And obviously, I mean, my heart bleeds for the US. I've seen a lot that's going on over there at the moment and obviously over in Europe as well. And we'll talk about it later, but also in Africa, the struggles that are happening across the world. But we need to stay positive. So I'm not going to talk too much about the negatives. Let's just keep it nice and light and positive. We'll we'll do the best we can in the middle of a you know, of a global <laughs> pandemic. It's not always easy to keep it light and positive. Anybody can, Kate, mm. Web- Kate Webster can. You mentioned that you're a traveler at heart. You definitely are. And, you know, one of the things that people are looking at, and, you know, we do a lot of, you know, covering road trips and travel and, and hospitality and cruising and all sort of the things that, that aren't really happening that much. But I, you, you mentioned, you, you know, you miss it and you're excited about kind of, you know, having that opportunity to get back to it when you can. Are there places that you're thinking of that maybe are on your bucket list to travel to or to maybe travel back to? Because there are a lot of, you know, when it's possible and, and when restrictions aren't in place, there's some deals out there. There's some real opportunities to get out and see some things just because of everything that's gone on. Oh, absolutely. I think for me at the moment... I'm actually enjoying exploring my backyard and we have for Australia, for example, and even my immediate backyard on the Gold Coast, I don't think I've sat this still in probably about 10 years, to be honest. So to slow things down and have a little bit more in-depth look in my own backyard has been kind of eye-opening and quite fantastic. I've actually introduced into my routines every Wednesday... I go up and do some hikes in the hinterland and the mountains, which are only about an hour's drive away, and I call it my Wilderness Wednesdays. And it's really just bringing me back to, I guess, a bit of slower travel and exploring my own backyard. So further afield, I think I'm excited to even explore Australia a lot more. I mean, this country is huge. It's massive. So there's still a lot for me to see and experience in my own country but of course i mean you'll probably know the answer to this i think my first place i'm dying to get back and visit is africa it's going to be the first year in probably about 10 years i haven't been on the continent so it's definitely something that i'm missing and it will be i'm no doubt my first trip overseas once that's allowed they 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 need you over there not only to be able to experience and do all the things that you do but to come back and kind of share uh, all that is going on and inspire other people to get out there and do the same. And in the next segment, we're definitely going to talk about Africa and some of the things that you've done and, and what's going on, the current events there. When I think about Australia, though, and I think about the Gold Coast, is that the place where, and you, you mentioned you're close to the beach, is that where you know, there's a lot of maybe sharks? Is that where the great white sharks are? And then also, too, when you say going on hikes, not too far from where it is that you live, you know, Australia has a very unique kind of set of, of wildlife inhabitants, whether it's kangaroos or or like a wallaby or something like that. What kind of things do you run into when you go on a hike that maybe we wouldn't see here in the States? Uh, well, I think starting with the hiking, we actually ran across um, or came across a giant carpet python the other week so look the snakes are definitely out there uh, especially this time of the year because it's it's still quite cool with winter for us and they like to get out on especially on the tracks and sun themselves and try and get the last of that heat so look there are some deadly snakes and you generally know which ones are friendly and which ones aren't and which ones to stay away from so 
that kind of wildlife you do come across a little bit. The kangaroos generally are a little bit more out west. So for the hinterland here up in the mountains, you might get some smaller wallabies and more so the smaller marsupials like the possums or the ground-dwelling marsupials. Uh, definitely some koalas here and there. It's always nice. great to see a koala. Uh, we do love them. Um, but apart from that, yeah, look, once you jump in the ocean, it's a whole new world. I don't know, you might have seen um, across the news lately, I was at Lady Elliot Island just a couple of weeks ago, and it's a small island just off the coast of Queensland near Gladstone, and they recently had a great white shark sighting just off the reef there. It was caught on film, and it's the first time they've seen it in about 25 years. And then about a week later, there was a humpback whale that was just sat there with some divers on the bottom of the ocean floor, just relaxing, because, of course, we have the, the humpback whale superhighway that comes up the east coast of Australia. So we are very, very lucky with both ocean, aquatic marine life, and also what's on the land. Oh, man. Okay, so the, the whales, that's on the superhighway. I wasn't necessarily familiar with that. That's awesome. And the sharks, of course, scary, but also very cool. Now, here's one of the things that um, some of the listeners has had some questions about the koala is it's it's a super cute animal, but there is maybe some misconceptions out there or some questions like whether they're actually nice. I have heard that they're they're actually they can be kind of kind of mean and not that friendly you shouldn't necessarily pick them up they're kind of maybe smelly too so maybe cute but maybe when you're as close as you are to them maybe not so pleasant oh look i think with any animal once it feels a little bit threatened it can get a bit angry and aggro um koalas are generally very docile so the life that they live and how they live that You'll spend, they'll spend a lot of time up in the gum trees or up in the eucalypt trees and they're, they're eating their eucalypt leaves. It makes them quite, they're quite sleepy by nature. But in saying that, once they're on the ground and if they're moving around from tree to tree, then they're at risk of, say, domesticated dogs or cats or even vehicles and cars So and, and humans, of course. So once they feel threatened, they they have claws and they have teeth and they will they will bear them if they need to. So don't be deceived. They, they look they they are gorgeous and they are quite like I said docile and sleepy. But I mean, if they do feel threatened, they will try and defend themselves. Yeah, <laughs> by any means necessary. When we come back from this break, we're going to continue our conversation with Kate Webster. She is uh, obviously in Australia, known for that sharing some of it, but so much of the great and important work that she does is in Africa. We're going to go over that with her and kind of get the lay of the land uh, and some current events as well. So keep it here. It's Dane on seven twenty WGN. Seven twenty, WGN. It is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, reaching thirty-eight states and Canada, and uh, and on the line with us an, an international caller calling us from uh, Mermaid Beach in the Gold Coast in Australia. Uh, you know her from all of the great work that she does with uh, with Captured Travel. It is one only Kate Webster. Kate, welcome back. Thank you. So, 
all the time that you spend in Australia and such a great, you know, ambassador for it, the, you know, one of the, the ways that we got connected here, of course, our good friend Dave Hammond here in the Chicago area, uh, as well was because of, of your work advocacy and all of those efforts that you do, uh, in Africa. And as the world is, is challenged with the pandemic and challenged with mobility and travel and all those, uh, kind of issues that we're all dealing with all across the globe. You know, talk a little bit about and catch us up with what is going on in Africa, challenges that they have there on the on the ecotourism side and with the animals, and how are things going? How are they dealing with it? Yeah, look, it's the same as, I guess, anywhere in the world. Africa is definitely struggling. Uh, the people there have lost a lot of... A lot of them have lost their jobs. They rely a lot on tourism, and that tourism brings in... Uh, a dollar that's going to help fuel and fund a lot of the conservation efforts that are happening on the ground there. So it's kind of put a little bit of a stop on things where the conservation and the work still needs to go forward. There's still the threats of poaching and there's still the threats for that wildlife over there. But without the tourist dollar coming in, it's really making it difficult for those teams and groups on the ground that are involved with helping with that. So at the moment, I guess there's a lot of people that are still trying to do the best they can under the circumstances. Like you said, there's a lot of uh, access into the area has been stopped because people that would normally be there have been stuck back in their home countries. So I'm at the moment working with a organisation called Soldiers for Wildlife and you had a chat just recently with the founder, John Garcia. Now, he's a prime example. Normally he would be over in Zambia doing some work, but unfortunately he's stuck at the moment in New York. But that doesn't mean that the work doesn't stop. So it's a matter of still keeping up the awareness, trying to drive some some funds into those areas where we can at the moment and just keep it on the forefront of people's minds that it is something that's still quite present. And if we don't continue working and fighting the battle to try and save this wildlife where necessary, it's something that we might not have for the future. So, but the good thing is, look, there are some great people out there on the ground who are doing some amazing, amazing initiatives. Uh, there's currently a, a brother couple, the Bozes brothers. They're doing some hiking at the moment through South Africa to try and raise some money to relocate 20 rhino. And that's called the Wild, Wild Again for 20 initiative. So I think they're into about day 10, um, so halfway through the challenge. And they're out there trying to cause some awareness, bring in some funds, like I said, to hopefully relocate these 20 rhinos to an area where they'll be a lot safer. So those We've are... just launched the... Oh, mm? oh no, Sorry? go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Sorry, Kate. Oh, no. So, so we've just launched as well for the Soldiers for Wildlife, the sponsor, a puppy competition. So that's once again another initiative where we can't be on the ground right now, but these puppies are currently in the UK. They're being trained up, ready. So when we can get them into Zambia, into the field, they will be trained, fully trained counter poaching dogs that will be able to assist. So it's initiatives like these that, that are still ongoing, even though we people cannot be on the ground in Africa at the moment. So the counter poaching puppies, and we got a chance to talk to John Garcia a little bit about that. I think that is that's fascinating and a great cause and a, and a very unique kind of innov, innovative way 
to approach it as well. And just as you are planning to get back to Africa and experience some of those things, and a lot of our listeners are planning or trying to imagine where would they go when they can go, describe a little bit. I know that there's no substitute for seeing uh, the animals, the gorillas, and, and some of those other large animals in Africa up close and in person. There's no substitute for being able to experience that firsthand. So as people kind of plan for what they can do when they can, describe those experiences and just how kind of transformative and important they can be. Oh, I think definitely seeing these these animals and this wildlife in their natural habitat is the most life-changing experience you can have. So it's hard for me to sit here and explain to you, oh, it's fantastic and, and you get to see these wild animals grazing on these, these vast plains or little lion cubs playing with their, their sisters and brothers while this massive male lion sits close by. It's, I can never do it justice. It's the, the, the whole concept of, of being on a game drive, going on a safari, coming home to your lodge at night, just being out in that African bush is, is something that you have to see it, you have to be there and you have to feel it to understand it. And I think a lot of people, once they do that, they will come back with, they say that the travel bug bites, but you should see how the Africa bug bites. Like once you come back from that continent, you will just be itching to get back there time and time again. And it's something then that you will then pass on as well, your knowledge. And I think this is what's really important. It's, it's the life lessons and, and learning from that bush and, and being around that wildlife to come home and explain to, to others and try and be an advocate for them to go over and see it for themselves. When it came to John Garcia and Soldiers for Wildlife, when that was exactly what his experience was when he first, you know, was there in person, saw not only what it was and experienced it fully, but also understood what needed to be done or what he could do to kind of help. It was, like you said, transformative. So, Kate, uh, share with the listeners if you can. So, what was the, your first time in Africa? What was it that you saw that had such an impact on it that it's been, you know, such a big part and passion of your life today? My first ever game drive, I was so naive and green to the experience. So I'd watched a lot of documentaries and David Attenborough, I grew up watching David Attenborough, like absolutely (laughs) worship that man. But my first experience on a game drive, I'm sat there with the binoculars, with my guidebook, with all the animal names in there and everything. I'm looking at my book and I'm looking through my binoculars in the far distance expecting to see these amazing animals I'd only seen on the TV screen and read in books. And the driver, our game ranger, kind of looked at me a bit strange and he said, Kate, put the binoculars away and just look over the side of the vehicle. And I'm not kidding you, like within a metre of the vehicle, there was about three lions just sat there in the grass. They'd obviously had a big speed because they're quite lazy. They didn't even move. We could have driven past. I wouldn't have even known they were there. And I just was overcome with emotion that I just cannot even explain. I was looking out in the far distance with binoculars. I didn't realise that they would be right next to me, so close that you could hear them breathing. You could smell them. They had that musty smell to them. And I, I honestly felt like if I leant over, I could touch them. Obviously, you definitely do not do that. <laughs> right. But that's how close you were to the... And, and that experience 
went from, I guess, from a level five up to a level 50 because it was much more than just viewing these animals. It was actually going into their world and, and being a part of that. And you suddenly feel very, very small and insignificant because these these animals could could jump up at any moment and the power and, and the raw nature of them it makes you feel very, very small. Wow. But that was my first experience and I'll never forget it. I, never. I cannot I cannot even imagine like what you know, you see things at the zoo and sometimes in some zoo settings you can get kind of close to but to be there with nothing between you and in that environment, in that open air um, it would be, I think, exhilarating. It sounds like also a little bit, uh, more than a little bit scary, more more scary than we described with the koala experience, for sure. But um, <laughs> but but thank you for sharing that. And and before we let you go, give the information where people can go on some of the sites and see some of the things that you do. Keep up with your adventures. I know on the photography side, there's a lot that you do, and there's a lot of kind of activity that you have within those spaces. And and kind of share how people can continue the conversation. Okay, well, probably the best way is to jump on the website Where Wild Things Roam. So that's just wherewildthingsroam.com, all one word. And that's going to have a lot of information about not only some amazing wildlife experiences, but some great information about the initiatives and conservation organisations that are out there doing some great things, because it's not just Africa, it is worldwide. Uh, and that will give you plenty of information. So we want to thank you for taking time out and calling us. I know that uh, it's been an inspiration to a lot of listeners as well. And we'll keep in touch with you as things kind of open up and as you get to, to get back to doing what it is that you do uh, on the exploration side and certainly the travel side and getting back to Africa. We'll reconnect and definitely have you on again. Thanks, Kate. Thank you. It sounds great. And you take care of yourself over there. We'll do We'll do our best. Okay, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have an opportunity to talk uh, with Jonathan uh, Distid from Blacksford RV. When it comes to traveling here, you don't necessarily run into lions or even koalas, but you'll have an opportunity to go ahead and see some of those great places in America, our national parks, and so many amazing places. But do it from the comfort of a, of a Mercedes Winnebago and uh, some of those creature comforts of home Wi-Fi, all the things that you need in order to fully experience um, Mother Nature. So stay tuned for that. Quick break. It's here. Dane on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN high atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, and excited to have on, especially at this time of year when uh, well, typically there'd be so many, whether it's family vacations or road trips or people getting out, seeing America in a bunch of different ways, and a guy that is making it possible and exciting in a bunch of ways with some of the coolest stuff out there, innovative ideas and ways uh, for an industry that really hasn't changed that much, kind of turning it on its head. It's the founder of Blacksford, the one and only Jonathan Dista. Jonathan, welcome to WGN. 
Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, well, it's exciting to have you on. You know, as a guy who, you know, over a number of years, you know, we talk about travel and, uh, you know, whether it's family road trips or getaways or ways that people can get out there and experience things. And, and now we're sort of at this strange point in history where the, the travel industry, hospitality industry, from the hotel side to theme parks to travel to overseas to cruises is all kind of put at a standstill. And, and you're seeing... You know, not only individual travelers or couples and certainly families kind of explore that road trip and specifically RVing. They're kind of taking a look at it, not only because it's great, it's always been great, but now because, you know, from the lack of alternatives, it's one of the only things people can do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, had a nice resurgence in popularity over the past couple of months. Well, we know that uh, this is an opportunity to kind of have some things become established that can be built in. And, you know, you look at some of the upsides, and we've done it on, on multiple shows, look for some of those silver linings that have come out of the pandemic with so much, you know, obvious negative things that are happening here in America and for the world. But for RV and specifically for your company, you know, Blacksford RV, it's it's kind of a you know you want to look at it as an opportunity this is an opportunity to kind of showcase what it is that you're doing so when it comes to this and let the listeners know uh these are they're i guess they would be called you know camp like luxury camper vans mercedes these are really nice a lot of the cool things that people would like about um being able to get out there see the wilderness kind of control where it is that they are from the from the driver's seat and and where it is that they go, but also some of those comforts of home. So describe a little bit about, because uh, you, you didn't think of this, you know, with pandemic in mind, right? This is something that has been, you know, years in the making, and now you guys have started it, launched it. Kind of give the listeners a little thumbnail into Blacksford RV. Yeah, this. I mean, it actually started out um, when, when I tried to rent an RV a couple of years ago, and it was not a great experience. My wife didn't want to get into you know, a vehicle full of stickers and and had 150,000 miles on it and, and stuff like that. And so I just, you know, being an entrepreneur, I set out, like, how am I going to fix it? And so uh, having been an avid traveler as well, I'm used to the hotels and service amenities and knowing that, you know, I don't get charged for a, a set of towels or, or bath soaps when I check into a, you know, a Sheraton or a... Uh, you know, another hotel. And so I just said, why can't the RV industry be like that? So I just kind of backed into it with customer service and technology at the core, along with really amazing RVs. And and while they are luxurious, I mean, they're, they're you know, we partnered with Winnebago for a very specific reason, the, the level of quality that we get um, from that manufacturer. And so from day one, you know, we, we decided that we were going to have all of our RVs be built on a Mercedes chassis. Uh, the biggest thing being is the reliability and the safety of the Mercedes. And then we worked backwards to make sure that it had all the, the creature comforts of, of what a family or a couple would want. So, uh, you know, some of our larger Class Ds, which are the traditional boxy ones that you see driving around, have everything from air conditioning and and multiple TVs and reclining beds and leather seats and, you know, full-size showers and everything you could imagine. It's basically a hotel on wheels uh, down to, you know, our, our all-wheel drive Winnebago, which is a little bit more Spartan, but for good reason. It's meant to 
to get into areas that you can't get with the traditional RV. It's got big, bulky tires on it. It's got, you know, a big, what they call gear garage in the back. So you can put your, your bikes and your coolers and all the gear, you know, but it also has, it has a shower that has hot water and it's, 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 it's got heat and it's got, you know, enough solar power to, to let you last for, you know, a week on end and all that stuff. And so we, you know, again, starting with that service model being the most important thing, technology empowering that service model and getting the best RVs that money can buy. Um, and I think the other part is that we we re- we sell all, all of our RVs every single year. And so we are always getting what? new RVs. You're never stuck with a, you know, a 10-year-old RV that's got 150,000 miles, you know. And so, you know, that that's kind of how we... Uh, that's how we started, and that's kind of kind of our brand promise to the consumer. Oh, that's awesome. There is so much about that is so completely different than the way it has been forever. But now here you are in a situation where you're welcoming so, so many people that are coming to the RV world that maybe haven't participated in it and maybe haven't seen a lot of those places that they'd like to see just because there wasn't the accommodations available on the planet that would allow them to have some of those creature comforts that, like you mentioned, that they would get you know in a hotel property or, or, or some other situation in the hospitality world. So were all of those things saying like, all right, well, let's put a checklist together. Like, here's the things that I would like, either like and be impressed by if I was used to the typical RV model or like and expect if I was used to the normal hospitality model. Did you put a list together or did was it the kind of thing? Did you kind of reach out and say like, geez, you know, wish list. What would we like to do? It was a little bit of both. I mean, again, I, I've you know, I've I've been a, an IT consultant my whole life, and I've traveled all over the world, and I've stayed in amazing hotels in Shanghai and really basic hotels in Cincinnati. And you know, regardless of where I went, there was a really basic service level that I always expected, and I always got, regardless of if I was paying eighty bucks a night or eight hundred dollars a night. And and I said that was completely missing from the RV industry. Mm-hmm. And so we started with that, and then you know, as we started to test the market, and we talking with friends at, at, at dinner parties and at the ski hill in Montana, you know, what would you want? And everybody kind of validated a lot of the things that we had, um, you know, and so the things that we've had along the way are definitely input that we've got from customers, right? So we added Yeti coolers a couple of years ago and we're in Las Vegas right now. So we have, nice. you know, generators so that, you know, people can run the air conditioning in some of these units that needed, you know, full power for air conditioning. All that stuff is, is, you know, when our customers ask us for it, we we don't look at it as a way to to spend money. We look at it as a way to to keep customers happy. And if if, if people want it, I'm a big fan of selling what people want to buy. Yeah. Okay. And so here's the thing too: is it's so much out there, and of course the listeners were talking with uh, Blacksford RV founder Jonathan Distad is that they understand there's a luxury market out there, whether it's glamping or whether it is kind of that luxury travel where certainly if you have all the money in the world, you can have an amazing uh, kind of experience and be pampered in a bunch of different ways. But that was also not part of the business model, not nickel and diming. And for the people out there, they'll understand and we'll go over that in our next segment. Plus, this has actually been made to be affordable, affordable for people, whether it's the different things they want to do with their trips and with their experience but also of course with their budget so keep it here we're going to continue our conversation with blacksford rv founder jonathan distad it's dane on 720 wgn 
Hi, John Landecker filling in one more time for Bob Surratt. Jamie Foxx has a movie coming out on Netflix. Brian Cranston has a series coming out on Showtime. What? My daughter's in both of those? Amy Landecker joins us at 840. Radio Chicago, WGN. Hi, this is Tom Jenke, president of Builder Supply Outlet. I'm so excited to announce that we are now stocking a white shaker cabinet that's made right here in the USA. The domestic cabinet industry has lost 40% of their business to imports, and I'm here to bring it back home. Our Prior Creek White Shaker cabinets are made of a durable, frameless construction with soft-closed doors and full-extension drawers. These cabinets are beautiful and perfect for any kitchen, laundry room, basement, or garage. Take them off the shelf this morning, install them this afternoon. These domestic cabinets were built to last. The best part, the price. Nobody can beat our price. Not the imports, nobody. It's the best value for your money. So what are you waiting for? Builder Supply Outlet is located just five miles east of the Oakbrook Shopping Mall on Cermak Road at 25th Avenue in Broadview. Or check us out online at buildersupplyoutlet.com. Quality and savings are what you get at Builder Supply Outlet. Hello folks, Orion here again. And if you're in the market for a new Subaru, then Gary Lang Subaru is the name I trust. Right now, experience their touchless car buying system at GaryLangSubaru.com. Simply select your favorite Subaru model from their vast inventory, Legacy, Impreza, Forester, Outback, Crosstrek, or Ascent. Secure your financing, get an instant trade offer, and your car will be delivered to your door. Or you can schedule an appointment in their sanitized showroom. Folks, visit Gary Lang Subaru, just minutes away from anywhere on Route 31 between McHenry and Crystal Lake, or complete your entire purchase online at GaryLangSubaru.com. You can't afford to buy or lease a new Subaru anywhere else. Remember, if it doesn't say Gary Lang on the back, you probably paid too much. Seven twenty WGN. It is Dane here with you. High atop Chicago in the Skyline Studio, reaching thirty-eight states and Canada, and many of those states have have got a great unexplored, or maybe explored, maybe underappreciated place. Whether it's national parks or or great, uh, you know, opportunities to take the family, get out there, and be at one with nature, but also at one with the things that you like and would uh, would enjoy. As far as some of those creature comforts, continuing our conversation with the founder of Blacksford RV, the one and only Jonathan Distad. Jonathan, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be back. So here's the thing. We always hear, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous and ways that people can, you know, have amazing things and and be able to see and do amazing things. But usually that price tag is prohibitive for the actual person. That was another thing that was built into the business model, not nickel and diming. And for people who've done the RV thing, they know that. Man, you can rack up a lot when it comes to the mileage, where you can rack up a lot whenever you add any little extra amenity or activity that you may do with that old or outdated RVs. And and some of them, you know, they can be a problem on the maintenance side themselves. Um, but that was one of the things. And, and trying to keep it affordable, it was part of what you had built into Blacksford. Absolutely. I, you know, I call it white glove for everybody. Again, you know, having traveled a lot, you know, there's a service level that I think everybody expects. And when 
you're you're renting or buying an RV. At every turn, there's somebody trying to charge you for something else, whether it's towels or kitchen utensils or mileage or pickup fees. There's always something that people try to add on. And I just found that just to be, A, it's hard to plan a vacation, you know, not knowing what the final charge is going to be. Um, we've all been on a cruise and you get at the end of the day and you're like, you get at the end of the cruise and like, how do I spend this much money, you know, at the poolside bar, <laughs> yes. right? So that's why you have all these all-inclusive things. So we, we said, let's, let's make sure that we, we include all the things that everybody would expect, but don't charge your premium for it. Um, and so it, 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 it's really simple. It, you know, it, again, it, it's really revolutionary to this industry, but when you, when you think about staying at a hotel or all that stuff, you, you don't expect to get charged for the stuff that you need when you when you stay at a hotel. And we just took that model and extended it to the RV industry. And lo and behold, it's revolutionary and and disruptive. And I, I love I love the option that we're we're, we're giving people something different. And, and in this, you're going to be in in a lot of ways the like the introduction point for RVing and, and what can be possible and maybe what could be expected at least with that let the listeners know you know unlimited miles and that is something where you get those first like 50 miles free but who goes in an rv and goes you know down the block you know you've got free wi-fi you've got roadside assistance there's some of those things that you have built into it uh and also too as you mentioned uh in some of the stuff that i saw is that you know outside of having to go to some place and try to find the rv place and pick it up especially if you're out of town let's say you don't drive all the way there from your hometown let's say you land you know, in Vegas or in one of those other destinations that you'll meet people, you'll meet them at the airport. So from the point that they get there to they get a chance to meet you and kind of integrate themselves into Blacksford, you're right there with them. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, in Bozeman, we meet them just outside of the, uh, the security area. We walk them down, we grab the bags, we take them over to the, to the curb where we have our, our, the RV parked and we walk through and we do all that stuff, you know, in Las Vegas. And when we open in Denver next year, uh, you know, we're, we're, we, you know, we're just a shuttle right away, just like you would normally do with a rental car. We meet you when you get off the shuttle. We show you to your RV. We help you with your bags. You know, just the really simple stuff. And, you know, being at the airport is, is really important to us. And we always say that we're, we're, we're airport forward. We, we, we feel that, you know, if, if people are, tr- when, when people get back to traveling and when they were doing it last year, it was a huge advantage versus, you know, either renting a minivan and loading your stuff up or getting into a Lyft or Uber and, you know, you know, incurring that expense both ways and, and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, it's the simple things, but they, they make the biggest difference in making sure that, you know, that vacation that everybody has planned on to go see the national park or go see grandma and grandpa in an RV uh, in a safe way is a, it's, it's as simple and as straightforward and as, as transparent as it can be. Yeah, it's simple, forward, transparent, but really unseen in the industry before. And uh, the website is uh, www.blacksford.com. We'll, of course, have links up at WGN Radio as well. And, and when we talked a little bit about sort of the freedom of the RV world and you get an opportunity to get out there, you can go wherever you want. Go to mountains, go to grandpa and grandma's, go wherever it is. But sometimes some of that freedom and flexibility on options is a little daunting, right? And people want a little bit of guidance. And so talk about how you guys have 
have also when it comes to some of those locations where the RVs are or where it is that you could go is you guys have also worked with Outdoorsy. You guys have curated experience. And so there's all these different places as suggestions, right? There's not, you're not obligated to do that, but you've curated a lot of great experiences for people. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, one of the big things that we do whenever we go into a market, and it started in Bozeman because we were local to the to that part of Montana, as we said, you know, half of the battle is getting the RV. The other half of the battle is figuring out where you're going to park it every single night. And so, you know, in all of our markets, we have, you know, basically free, pre-built, curated guides to, to each market. So what campgrounds do we recommend and, you know, which way is the best way to get the glacier or to Yosemite from, from wherever, you know, but there are some people that also just say, listen, I, I, I want somebody to handle it for me. I'll tell you what our goals are. And I need somebody just to pick the RV parks or the campgrounds and do it for me. And so for a really small fee, you know, we, we basically do everything for them. We book the rafting trips, the fly fishing trips, the helicopter tours, everything. No. And we pass those costs on directly 100%. We don't even get a commission from the people that we book it through. Our <laughs> people have the absolute best vacation they can in an RV. And, and we just find that helping people plan is just another step that if I were doing this with my family, which I tried to, I was expecting this, and it was a really difficult process. And so we just kind of, again, extended our expectations of what what should happen, and we just said, well, it's not that hard to do, and we're all locals, so wherever the, you know, each each one of the locations, we hired locals. We don't have call centers over in, in China or Philippines. We have everybody who's local, and when you ask somebody, you know, where's the best pizza in, in Las Vegas? We're going to tell you to go to so whatever the whatever their favorite pizza place is. And so, like, it's it's really it's really straightforward. And and you know, try to again get people on the road, enjoying the great outdoors with the family, and uh, make it as, as affordable as possible. Well, it doesn't get more authentic than to be in Bozeman, Montana. You mentioned Glacier National Park. I was there as a kid. It is an amazing place. And so, let's talk a little bit about sort of the inspiration of it. Obviously, you want to disrupt the industry. You want to have a business model that works. You want to get in there you know, and have a successful business that can you know do what it is that you want it to do and offer opportunities and experiences for people, but also be a really cool business, which you've done. Let the listeners know we're talking with founder of Blacksford RV, Jonathan Distead. So was that part of it? You know, because one of it was you you saw problems in the industry, pain points, and you're like, oh, this would be better if it was like this. But was part of it as a guy who has done this before and lives really kind of in, in one of our nation's epicenters for, you know, a beautiful national park where you're like, man, I got to make this easy. People got to see this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, it's, it really is daunting. And I, like I said, I, I live in, in, in Big Sky, Montana. I work in Bozeman every single day. It is the epicenter and the number of people that come here and I'm in awe every single time. I'm delivering an RV to a family or to a couple or to, or to friends who are going on vacation. And these people spend years planning to go to places like the Grand Canyon and Yellowstone and Glacier and, and the Tetons and stuff like that. And if you really kind of get, you take a step back and you realize that, you know, gosh, my, you know, Yellowstone is a Tuesday for us, but these people spend, <laughs> you know, a, a great fortune sometimes planning and doing this stuff because there's oftentimes multiple families will come in, you know, we'll have multiple generations rent RVs and do a trip with, you know, the grandparents. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful way to do it. And, you know, um, the inspiration was that, 
Um, the other inspiration is that we're, we're, we were profitable from day one, which is really important for people to know also is that, you know, I run businesses that are cash flow positive from day one. We're not going out to get venture capital or private equity. We run this business just like you run your checking accounts. And when we have money in the bank, we make sure that we re- reward our employees, that we reward our customers with discounts. And as long as we're healthy, um, you know, we make sure that everybody everybody wins in that in that healthy business environment. You're doing the people's work, too, and uh, we'll have links up at WGNRadio.com. You can go to Blacksford.com and see pictures of the things. want to reinforce uh, before we let you go that these – uh, these are brand new Mercedes-Benz Sprinter Overland Adventure vehicles from Winnebago. You'll even help outfit provisions for the vehicle. Say like, hey, you know, we're gonna we'll have it stocked with all of the stuff that you need. And, and the prices start and get this for anyone who has tried to rent an RV. You, I know that it's half again more for some of the most um, conservative and, and not anything that would be linked with the word you know luxury or or anything opulent or, or or even just kind of new you know would be well over 250 getting into 300 dollars a day and that doesn't count gas and that doesn't count really anything and you're starting at 199 dollars a day and of course you know there's a bunch of different sizes depending on what it is that you need and options to go up and down but cost was always something that was kind of forefront right you wanted this to be awesome but again you know it had to be something people could do yeah, I literally was chatting with somebody uh, today on our website, and they were just floored that, you know, it's actually $199 a day. That's crazy. There wasn't any hidden fees. Yeah, and I'm that's like, great. yeah, I'm like, they're, book- they're, they're, they're booking an RV for Denver next summer. They're actually booking two. It's a grandparents booking, like, two families to go out. And he was just floored. He's like, I, I, I can't imagine going out and buying something like this and thinking that we can, you know, we can do this, but the thing is, is again, you know, we run a, a good conservative business, and we make sure that you know when we have an opportunity to pass savings on to people, we do, and, and it's how I would want it to be with me. And, and I'm not a greedy entrepreneur. I want to make sure that this this happens and that people can take their vacations. And now in the, the post COVID or the COVID world, you now it's even more important for for families to connect. And um, you know, it'll it'll be really interesting to see, you know how many families go out and do geology or history lessons by renting an RV for a long weekend and, and going to look at the geological features of Yellowstone in the winter or, you know, the Grand Canyon or something like that. It's a, it's a really cool way to, you know, even even take education, you know, beyond the, the home classroom. Well, there's opportunities for people to experience this. Take a look at this as an option that maybe didn't exist uh, in the past. But once they get there and see it kind of through that Blacksford lens and in that way, you know you're going to get a lot of people that are going to love what it is they can do and see the possibilities, right? You can go almost anywhere and you can see a lot of those things and in ways that probably were, whether it was cost prohibitive in the past, whether there was that air of mystery or just, you know, all kind of the negative things related to, to camping and the RV experience if you don't have a lot of those details details nailed down and as we let you go so the website it's blacksford.com uh, and for is there social media or anything that you guys are doing or ways people listeners can keep up with your adventures yeah we're, we're on we're on facebook for on blacksford rv and we're on instagram as well so um check out there to get inspiration about where we're going as a family we're always traveling so i'm always posting on all those accounts on where we are and 
you know, it's a great way to kind of get an insider's view of, of great campgrounds around the country. Yep. In, in uh, I think Denver, I saw, was one of the ones that was coming soon. Vegas, for sure. And of course, Bozeman, Montana. And as more people get in on this, you'll expand, like you said, as you can, uh, kind of maintaining the integrity of the business model and satisfying and meeting kind of the public's desire to get in on all those really cool things that you are doing. So thanks so much for everything that you're doing. And uh, thanks, Jonathan, for jumping on the show tonight. Thanks. 720 WGNet is Dane here with you for another I don't know, 35 or 40 seconds. Want to take a minute to, to thank, oh, not, we'll take 45 or 40 seconds to thank everybody that listened to the show. Thanks to everybody who participated, uh, and so many great guests. And thanks, Tom, for, for everything you're doing. Congratulations again on, uh, on getting engaged and all that. It's going to be an amazing situation coming up. So congratulations, uh, on all that. Want to encourage people to check out WGNRadio.com. We're going to have links to all of the different features up there, and we're going to have some updates coming up for the Indy 500 uh, as well. Uh, the first one ever that's going to have zero people there, not that 400,000 that we are totally uh, used to having. Go to, uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at Dane Tonimo and Dane Neal on Instagram uh, as well. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Get out there, be safe, and have a great weekend. It is time for the news.